Ready Player One stretches the realm of believability so hard, it snaps. It just snaps. Like like a rubber band that yeah. just can't handle it. Ready Player One is not believable. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it's got nothing to do with the virtual reality. Ready Player One is unbelievable because there is no fucking way anybody would be in that VR world as a Battleborn character. <laughs> Not even Randy Pitchford. He'd saw... be some he'd be some sort of fucking magician. He'd be Mandrake from Defenders of the Earth. No gearbox employee. Nobody. Especially in when that's set. What is it? Like 20 45. 20... 2045 2045 Well that see Fuck that was you had, you had made this comment on Twitter while you were Overwatch, watching it. Yeah, Overwatch will be like pre-retro by that point. Battleborn is already forgotten. People wouldn't be Battleborn avatars now. Well, this is uh, you had brought this up on Twitter and mm -hmm. you said that not even Gearbox employees would have, you know, this Thing. And I, I, I wanted to point out to people that this is proof of how much love and respect you have for Gearbox as a company, because you believe that they will have employees still in 30 years. <laughs> oh, sir. Um, I mean, that that's a point, though. So many companies would not be in existence by then, Certainly. I feel. Um, Certainly. And so it's like it's all very well to fill it up with stuff we recognize now and i get that the like the, the the creator it works that his pop culture obsessions are a little bit more retro and stuff we would recognize but the players in the world all being contemporary for us figures it works as a visual i mean visually this is a great film but i'm sat there the whole time thinking some of these characters people would not know or give a fuck about so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, here's what I'm going to say about that issue, though. Uh, it's better. It's handled better than in the book. Yeah? yeah. I think it'd be very easy to explain away. Like, as fucked as the outside world seems to be, just say pop culture went into stasis. Well, like, and, they're and all hanging actually, around in cars. That actually but is in the sort film, of they the don't explanation, right, is that pop culture went into a stasis. But the difference between the two is rather than pop culture going into a status at some point at which civilization has collapsed the stasis point is the 1980s it's specifically the things that Halliday was interested in because everyone is interested in the egg right Right, which just goes to further superhero our character for his intimate knowledge of everything in this one person's life. Gotcha. Because for me, obviously, I, I knew of the book's existence through you. Um, I haven't read the book. Uh, I may do. I may no, do. Having please seen don't. The f no? Please okay. do not. It will just oh. infuriate you. It is right. Wikipedia, the novelization. Right, because that's the thing. I'd heard so much about it. And really, when it comes to Ready Player One, you never hear about the plot. You hear about the pop culture shit. Yeah. Um, and I heard so many bad things about it because of all that. The movie as well. People, oh, that's a piece of shit. It's just, you know, he get into his DeLorean and gets out his He-Man lunchbox and then puts on his shades from Bret the Hitman Heart and stuff like that. But um, the film's all right. Yeah. Honestly, that's... like as, as, as much as I can point out the things I find that knocked me fucking incredulous. Um, 
like to the point where a giant VR world where everyone's in it is the most believable aspect. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it was all right. It was an inoffensive action adventure for the most part. Yeah, not I, particularly I think... revolutionary. Like it's, it was relying on that whole. You know, I recognise that. I know that. I'm familiar with that. I clapped when I saw it. It relies on that a lot, but the core of it is, you know, it's a little heartfelt adventure. It ain't too bad. Right. And, like, okay, so I, I, I cannot stress this enough. I really do not like the book. Right. <laughs> like, I really don't like the book. But, and, and I don't necessarily care for some of the implications and thematic narrative stuff that makes it from the book into this, because I think that there are some kind of toxic ideas still present in right. it. Yeah, but, yeah, I can see that. I think one of the problems there is it's just a bit of a vapid story. Right, right. So it doesn't really challenge any of the things in it that could be challenged. But at its core, if you strip away, if you stripped away all of the artifice of of this virtual world and all of the character avatar things appearing and all this intellectual property and product placement, all of that crap, if you strip all of that away, this is the Goonies. It's E.T., <laughs> It is yeah. absolutely a 1980s era Emblem Entertainment film. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, what, one of the big premises of some of those old adventure films was, you know, that stuffy corporate guy wants to do bad thing. Uh, some energetic teens team up and stop him. Exactly. Uh, it really is no different from a lot of those sort of classic adventure films that we watched as kids. And I think that that is, I think that as much as nostalgia is the attraction for people who love this story, that nostalgia for the kinds of films that Steven Spielberg used to make, mm-hmm. I think is, is, was, is what drew him to the project. That would be that, my guess. Yeah. Uh, people say, oh, it's the money. I'm sure the money... Is, was very, very good. It helps, doesn't it? It, <laughs> it? it makes decisions a bit easier. But I don't see why Steven Spielberg at this stage in his career would make this movie simply on the basis someone, of the money. Someone, yeah, someone uh, asked me on Twitter, they were like, I think a bigger mystery, because they responded to the Gearbox thing, they said, I think a bigger mystery. Well, someone said, I think a bigger mystery is why um, TJ Miller's getting work. Um... <laughs> Well, but I, this, I, this I recognize was all the done voice before TJ Miller gotten really hot shit. Yes, um, I, yeah, because I because uh, I didn't know any of that shit. I heard the voice and was like, "That sounds familiar." I looked at, I'm like, "Oh, TJ Miller from Deadpool." I get it now. And then looked on his Wikipedia. When you go on someone's Wikipedia, you're instantly attracted to the header the that says "scandal controversy." And, yeah, clicked on it and was like, "Oh, he punched an Uber driver for liking Trump." That's a bit fun. And then downwards. And downwards, and controversy <laughs> after controversy, and by the end of it, I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, punching punching an Uber driver was, was the, the least bad thing he did. Yeah, a bit of a oh, yeah. It, but an interesting uh, fun fact about this uh, movie, and and that relates to how T.J. Miller's performance and it happened way before T.J. Miller really got into trouble. Uh, Steven Spielberg's film The Post, which is about uh, the Washington Post reporters around uh, the uh, Watergate stuff, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or, or yeah, I think that was the one. They shot, produced, and released that film during the post-production period for Ready Player One because of how computer-graphic intensive it is. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. Spielberg got a whole other movie done in the time that this was being done. Yeah. Funny. Uh, Apparently, just to loop it back, someone on Twitter said that apparently Steven Spielberg is a big fan of the book. So that might account for him. Horrifying. It really does not speak to his taste in literature. Um, yeah, I can only go by what I was told on Twitter, but apparently he likes the book. I think that's um, the sort of thing that you say for the press. Maybe. <laughs> like, maybe. I, mean, I hope. I hope that's something <laughs> that he said for the press. Cause... I always forget that you don't like the book, because I heard of it from you. I always assume you like it. Um, I, I s- and then I remember that you just... I mostly what to. you told about me was Max Headroom was in it. Yeah, I wanted to like it. I did. Uh, because, I mean, it is. it seems like it's a book that should be written for me. I should be the target audience because I grew up with all the same shit Ernest Klein did, you know? And I love all the same shit Ernest Klein seems to. I mean, I did the same thing. Like, watching the film, you know, you say, oh, look, there's RoboCop. Oh, Mm -hmm. look, there's Jason. Ha ha, I know these things. Um, Oh, I will say the movie is not as obnoxious about it as I thought it would be. No. I really thought it was, because someone once did a spoof write-up of it of... Just every single sentence was some shameless pop culture reference. Whereas the movie is at least mostly background details. Yeah. You know. Um, oh, yeah. look, there's Tracer in the background. Ha, ha, ha. And it's um, it's uh, it's definitely a home video movie, which is interesting for something that is such a spectacle that you would think, oh, you know, the, you need the theater experience to really take all of this in. And I'm sure that that was fucking awesome. But if you actually want to see all of the stuff in it, you've got to be able to pause like, and, and sort of take in everything that's in it because yeah. you're not going to catch is, it all at once. Which is sort of counterintuitive to the type of film it is, i.e. perfect Sunday afternoon casual viewing fodder. Sure. But I will sort of say, flick it on and let it play. I will say this. I think that there is something about this kind of uh, incredibly dense content drop that keeps happening where you know these scenes where we see all these avatars at once to where your eye is instinctively drawn to things that you'll immediately recognize and i say that because the really the thing i remember more than anything else seeing in these group shots are the battle toads Uh, yeah yeah the battle toads stood out but there is an issue with that where i think okay everyone in the world is playing this why do the same three players keep showing up mm-hmm. why is unless in this world there are just hundreds of battletoads fans well, that, then that may be laws but... of probability suggest that statistically you wouldn't bump into tracer again but she's always there well i think that there is uh something to be said that you know for the idea that there is this class of people who are participating in the hunt and we don't really get exposed to that very much in the film. It's said that it's happened. You know, it's said that people are clanned up and that Parzival isn't someone who clans up with other people. But um, that's a much larger aspect of the book. There are Gunter clans running around and, and there's some discussion of that culture that sort of expands it and helps you to realize that if you're hunting for the egg stuff... 
you're probably going to run into a lot of the same people over and over again. Because well, I mean, they all have a singular purpose. True, but then we really only see the a lot of these background characters at times where they're not looking for X, like these right. big um, event hub things. world yeah. things and like the the final battle and all this. So I, I, it, it's obvi- it's an obvious limitation of you can't buy the rights to every single thing in the world. No, very but few I... people have that kind of money. But so they get a few. And then throw in some originals, but then they keep reusing the stuff they paid for because they paid for it. So I'm like, oh, look, it's Rayu. He's everywhere. Is he spying on them? (laughs) You know. Right. Now, here's an interesting uh, thing that I noted as I was uh, finishing up watching, because it is, again, very, very dense with intellectual properties. There's still, I mean, a ton of them in there, even if they're reusing. A surprising amount, sure. It's shocking. Um, 25 licensees. <laughs> so, um, if you want to sort of think about the consolidation of our entertainment media and uh, and how few companies and individuals own so much of the intellectual property that our entertainment medium is based upon, uh, you don't have to look a whole lot further than to realize that everybody in this film is owned by one of 25 organizations. Yeah. If only the movie itself had things to say about that rather than perpetuate it. Right. Instead of just a really vapid uh, sort of moral lesson at the end. Uh, there about, are, oh, ha- there are ha- There's some commentary. It's not strong, but it's limited more to things like, you know, corporations uh, will turn you into a number. Uh, okay, yeah, I got that in high school. It's very uh, familiar you know, territory. Right. The, um, you know, they'll strip you of all your identity. They're all dressed in the same outfits. Uh, they want to put pop-up ads all over the internet. Yeah. It's... And I guess I shouldn't be... It's odd because I, I understand it's a simple action adventure and I shouldn't expect too much, but it is hard to like watch Black Mirror and all the things that manages to do with similar concepts. Mm-hmm. And then this, which is just such a shallow puddle of a message or a story, you know. Yeah. Um, but as I say, just taking it at simple face value, you got a, f- a fairly decent action adventure. It, it was charming. It was fun. I don't know if I'll rush to see it again, but it's one of those things where if we still watch network television, like the old days, right? Um, if it was on TV, I'd watch it. Um yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. I mean, this it is. It's like I said earlier. It feels like a, a early mid '80s movie mm-hmm. in in its tone and pacing and its characterizations. Um, Which just, of course makes sense for yeah who was involved and what the story is mm-hmm. at its at its core. Um, but I do have, I've got major problems with parts of it. Yeah, and me too. overall, I'm like, okay, decent film, but. I was asking a lot of frustrated questions while watching it, which I'm sure we will get oh. to as we go through it. Yeah. Well, why don't we just get into it and, and, and ruin yes. all of the uh, good Absolutely. feelings? Absolutely. But um, just before we crack on, I've just got to say the premise is fucked. <laughs> the, the world is fine. Yeah. The premise of the one particular story set in this world is fucked, but we will get to that. So um, shall we talk about Ready Player One? And as you say, ruin it. Yeah, but let's do it. Good stuff.
We open with a drone shot through the stacks outside Columbus, Ohio in the year 2045 while Van Halen's Jump plays. Yeah. Uh, I know that song. I, I know that song. And and this is – I'm torn on this because we often talk – we have talked about this several times in the past, this practice of I know that song. Um, yeah. And and using I know that song as a reference point to make people feel good about the thing that they're watching right now. Yeah. Um, like that classic song at the beginning of Assassin's Creed. Yes. That we saw. <laughs> <laughs> and this film does that. I don't know if it's as egregious as some other films that do it, like say Pixels or uh, Angry yeah. Birds. Of Suicide um, Fucking Squads with all of its fucking licensed music right. in place of good writing. And it feels, for the most part, appropriate. It doesn't overbear me at any point that it that it's in there. I uh, liked I liked um, the end credits, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the the music, they, the song they chose for that worked really well. Um, but the first... I was all... Because I've... I've heard this reputation had preceded it for this film. When, when Van Halen's jump, I was already getting ready to roll my eyes. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we uh, we meet Wade Watts as he's emerging from a quote-unquote mobile home in the stacks. So what the stacks are, they are like steel girders arranged in almost towers, I guess, on which mobile homes have been s- literally stacked. Yeah. This is this is straight out of the book. This is this is how he lives. I don't think he's actually in Columbus. I think he's elsewhere and winds up in Columbus later in the story. Uh, as far as I can tell, everyone in the world lives in Columbus. How, how? as evidence later on when he meets everyone he was playing with. I guess I can't figure out how this happens. Like this practice of stacking mobile homes specifically. Because that seems like a weird thing, particularly when we already, by the time this was written, by the time, you know, this was made a film, we already have long had the idea of shipping containers being used for this purpose. It'd be a much yeah. cheaper sort of thing to build. I, I, I mean, I just I feel like it's... It's the rule of cool, except it's not all that cool. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when it's it's interesting, like you can forgive anything if it's sufficiently badass enough. But yeah, it's just mobile home stack. It's this problem we have with a lot of future stories, where the ideas we come up with f- to make it futury are less convenient than what we've got already. Right. Yeah. And well, and uh, like I think back to Neil Stevenson's book Snow Crash, and the main character starts uh, that story living in a shipping container like this. I mean, that's like a twenty. 25 year old novel by this point and um and it was really cool in that (laughs) so i don't understand how it couldn't have been made to seem cool in this i just i guess maybe the mobile home thing just seems more american maybe i was just about to say like you know maybe the author specifically associates that with poverty and it's the easiest thing to be like trailers stacked on top of each other (laughs) poor things yeah i guess i mean that I suppose, yeah, that that's a perfectly good explanation for it, but it's... I think it's just, it's very on the nose, basically. Yes, it is. 
so as he's emerging from his home and clambering his way down this, these steel girders, uh, we're shown what the future looks like as he goes. And, yeah. and the future is drones delivering hot, fresh Pizza Hut pizza and people in VR rigs playing tennis and pole dancing in their mobile yeah. homes. I got a big problem with a lot of this. This oh, is one good. of the first questions. Why is why are people still alive if they've got <laughs> if they've got VR headsets strapped to themselves and they're walking around in the street? How are they not getting hit by cars and punching each other? You never see anyone accidentally punch someone else. It shouldn't work. I have some very it, I yeah, I have a lot of questions about spatial relationships. Yeah. And it's the, it's so silly. It's honestly ridiculous. That is one of the things where I'm like, that's not believable. And it's it's less believable than all the technological shit, which I can be like, fine, fine, sufficiently advanced technology, good. But that doesn't account for people stri- blindfolding themselves and wandering around in public because they're not all just doing it in their homes. Later on, we see an entire army of people just in the street punching thin air and somehow not connecting with each other (laughs) all i'd need all i'd need even if it was bullshit is just you wear this little ball and it creates this space around you that can't be sort of touched or just some sort of thing where if a field of some just come up with something so i feel okay watching it and not questioning it it's weird because it does at multiple points present conceits that would allow for this to work, you know, like right off the, right off the bat, we're about to see uh, um, Wade using an omnidirectional treadmill in no. in his van. Uh, later, they are hooked up to uh, tethered rigs inside of their van that allows them to basically stand still and not, you know, be not move anywhere when they well, start just... trying to do running. I notice for the most part, it's the main characters whenever it gets significant showing so mm-hmm. that we maybe in the hopes that we won't question it so much. Right. But every time I see a background character, right? I'm questioning it. Like IOI have their little stations that they're in with their vests that hold them in place. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and of course, the other question I have is when we go to IOI and they've got the um, that big egg that one of them sits in, I'm then spending the whole time wondering, is he just kicking? legs in the chair to walk (laughs) and and then uh okay so just to there are these things called the loyalty centers which is basically indentured servitude that these people who owe money to the bad corporation have to go work in to pay off their debts You've seen it in many films. You've, you've seen it in many films. And they are all around, all of these little they're all in these little cells and they're all in a grid in their thing, right? And the way it seems to be repeatedly presented is that these people always seem to remain in the same space distance relative to each other because she looks over to her left at an avatar who is like being punished for something and she's looking in the direction of the cell and it's the appropriate distance and like they've created a whole virtual environment unbounded by the rules of physics and then seemingly (laughs) felt like they had to force the real world into this environment. I, I, again, 
it's weird when the most fantastical elements are the least questionable parts, because at least you can then just say it, they're fantastical. That's fine. But, but you've got to think about the logistics. Yeah. yeah, just the simple fundamentals. Also, and this isn't specific just to, to this film or story, but how do people in the future sleep? Every time I see the future, the billboards are shouting at you. <laughs> You, you think, I guess you Why are billboards so loud in the future? <laughs> it's not just this. Like, I, off the top of my head, Repo the Genetic Opera does it as well. Fucking Idiocracy. Loud sh- idiocracy. Um, probably Blade Runner. Blade Runner for sure. I, probably the, yeah, I, I can't remember the Blade Runner. I haven't seen the new one either. But the future is shouting billboards. Bringing up um, uh, Neil Stevenson again, his uh, book The Diamond Age uh, is, is very similar. In fact, one of the main characters makes his career by coming up with the idea of having scrolling advertisements on chopsticks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it's yes. I I I do not know how people sleep. It's it's like that. Isn't there? A, there's an episode of Seinfeld with the Kenny Rogers roaster sign that's keeping Kramer awake. I think. Oh, I I, I only saw a few of those. Uh, it is. I, I. It's a fascinating show. It it really is. I mean, I don't know if it's consistently funny enough to justify watching all the way through, but. The ones I've seen were pretty good. It's, you know. it, yeah, it has a. There's a lot of. It's a lot like The Simpsons, where when it is fucking on fire, it's nuclear. It's a really. It was really, really funny at its best. Uh, Master of My Domain, uh, the bet I think is the episode. Oh, that one's just mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, anyway, so. So we're we're thirty seconds into. Yeah, the we're thirty film. seconds into this movie, <laughs> and we've spent uh, half an hour talking about it. Um, uh, Wade tells us that he was born in 2027 after some things called the corn syrup droughts and bandwidth riots. <laughs> you see, I cringe there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you see, like riots and droughts, I know those, but like, oh, look at this modern like bandwidth. I know what that is. Yeah. I'm, fam- I'm familiar with it. I'm oh, familiar man. with and, it. And, I, and we know how ever-present corn syrup is in everything we right? eat. Right? Can you imagine how horrible it would be if there was a <laughs> corn drought that... How'd you have a drought? Did they just, did they get rid of corn and just squeeze all the syrup into a lake? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The entire Midwest just, you know, there was there must have been no rain for years. Yeah. And, 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 and if you'd have de- said corn famine, that would have made more sense, but would have sounded less pop culture. Well, and corn, you have a drought with something that's liquid. Corn syrup is a liquid. Therefore, corn syrup droughts as opposed to. Uh, uh, and Where did the corn go? Do you have any idea? How if it's long- just the syrup that's gone. Just get more corn. They have well, and and we subsidize corn so much. What and, is that bag of Doritos in the background of one scene made out of? And there's tons of corn that's kept in storage and not sold every year. Do you know how long it would take to run out of corn syrup? Shit it wouldn't be bad. fucking. Was it like nine? Is it nine? Would it be nine years from now? Uh, well, he would be bored nine years from now. Uh, so at some so point... So within the nine years... Yeah. We're going to run out of all the corn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
what? When I was a kid, 2020 seemed so far off. But right. I was replaying Mankind Divided where stuff's happening in the 2020s and stuff. And I'm just like, you know what? I think we need to start moving our sci-fi forward. We like, really just do. whack it up a century. Well, the thing about sci-fi is that it's always so goddamn optimistic about how quickly like technology is going to progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's like tech does move fast, but not that fast. Yeah. The- Rush had the right idea. 2112, that's where it all starts. There we go. At least they had the right idea about something. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can't let my wife hear that I said that. Um, so uh, Columbus, where he, he lives, is the fastest growing city in the world. He lives there with his aunt, but he does all of his VR stuff in a van buried under detritus. Um, this is explained better in the book. He has this little hidey hole to get away from his aunt's long string of terrible boyfriends. And to yep. keep the, the shit terrible, from getting stolen. The terrible boyfriend in this film is played by the actor who played Chris Finch in the UK office. And uh, other people will probably be more familiar with him as Dagmar Cleftjaw during Game of Thrones. Mm. He's uh, British, uh, but he's only in one scene doing a all right American accent. It's, it's, it's funny to hear him do times. it. Because he's got this really thick northern accent in mm. real life. So it was impressive to see him do any other accent because he's always doing pretty much the same sort of sleazy, gruff northern character. And now in this, he was sleazy, gruff American. Yeah, I wouldn't have known he was British if you hadn't told me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So he's, uh, let's see, where were we? Oh, yeah. So Wade tells us as he puts on what appears to be a rather hacked-together VR rig with his omnidirectional treadmill that a dude named Halliday built a virtual world that people could escape to. And Wade puts on his VR helmet, and we're moved to his perspective as it loads the Oasis, which he describes as a universe limited only by your imagination, which is, of course, then therefore immediately led off with a Minecraft world. Yeah. That's... Yeah, that was one of the most blatant uh, it <laughs> product is, placements. It is immediate. Uh, other planets... Inc- Here's the other thing. Mm-hmm. All right, this is going to be the first of my many questions about the film, um, which you, as, as a reader of the book, may be able to answer for me. You can go anywhere and do anything, it says. You could be anyone you want, do anything you want. In that case, why are people fighting for money and stuff? Uh, okay, so... The economics of the Oasis are gone into much greater detail in the book. Uh, traveling to places has a gas cost. Right. So you see, that's all I would have needed. Yeah. That's all I would have needed in the film. Um, but in the film, it starts off with, you can do anything. You can climb the Alps with Batman. Uh, you can ride a DeLorean. And it's like, I get that there are these microtransaction elements in it, but it just, in the film, runs so counter to the way this is presented to us initially. Yeah. And, I mean, I think the way to sort of think about it is uh, a second life or a, um, what, what is it, Star Citizen? Or, no, what's the, no, it's uh, Eve Online. No, Star Citizen Star is Citizen's a disaster. pay money right. for nothing. Right, yeah. No, Eve, Eve Online or Second Life where uh, there is a community-driven economy that's kind of at the heart of it all. Sure. And that I just would have liked that a bit better presented in the film because they try and present it as something more than just another second life. But then as it goes on, you're like, oh, this is just second life. Yeah, and I get why they decided not to go into that because the book gets kind of bogged down in this. It is a a sort of constant problem, uh, particularly early in the story for Wade, 
uh, because he can't really go anywhere or do anything because he doesn't have any money. And, uh, and, 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 and it is even sort of, I mean, it's, it's sort of central to this story as well in some respects as you have the corporation that is infinitely funded going up against the people who have nothing or had to, you know, earn everything that they have uh, to get to the point that they're at. Uh, but it's it's really much more driven home in the book because he's, you know, got to make decisions about whether or not he's going to spend this extra money to get somewhere faster so he can, yeah. you know. I think the main problem was that it starts off saying, do anything, be anyone, you can do whatever you want, and then immediately cuts to people on a death world risking everything they have right. to make money. And I agree. And that it's, just, it seems so incongruous. It, it doesn't, it's not explained, it's not even explained in the context of it being a game. Like, it's said that it's a big game, but it's presented as an infinite environment. It They tell us that people are trying to win, but it's not clear what they're winning like what is the win state is the win state just having all the things i don't know i i don't know i mean it can't because that 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 was irock's whole thing isn't it the one of the antagonists is uh spent 10 years accruing all of this stuff right he doesn't seem to be anywhere ahead of anyone else it's it's just a, a weird weird sort of thing so yeah we're we're showed a few other planets, a sports planet and a casino planet that's complete with an hourly motel. So there can be a joke that the parrots in the audience, who, by the way, are all likely old enough to identify with the references that the novel was fixated on, let alone all of these more modern references uh, <laughs> that, that yeah. were inserted into uh, it for the purposes of the film and a more youth-oriented audience. Uh, like, I think that's very telling because... You know, from what I do know of the book, where it is just so steeped in eighties, whereas here, the eighties is sort of an afterthought, lip service almost. getting paid to it. Yeah. While, as you say, a lot of the more youth-oriented, just pure marketing, is all over this film. Yep, yep. It is a, it is a two-hour commercial for everything that you love. Yeah, like you see Overwatch presented in this way more than you see pretty much any 80s thing mm-hmm. absolutely With the ex- i mean With the exception of the I guess delorean the, shining, the delorean and the shining obviously gets a big scene yeah um but in terms of just incidentals then yeah overwatch halo battle like basically just a lot of modern video games yeah it's that's basically what it is it's it's things that people can go out I and mean, buy e- now e- even the ninja turtles that we see are the fucking michael bay ones yeah, you're right. They are. That's... The Michael Bay ones. Like they couldn't even be bothered to have, like maybe have them fighting side by side with some players who were the '80s ones. You know, that is like the co- the comics or the cartoon or just one of the you know more original. That would have been a cool visual. Yeah, that that would have been great. But it's but no, no. Just shout out for the fucking Michael Bay ones. <coughs> uh, so. Uh, we're showing that people can be anything they want, especially if they want to be Battletoads or Robocop or Marvin the Martian. And, yeah. and Wade... Someone's going to tell me that the original turtles are in the background somewhere and I missed I'm them. sure, yeah. Wade apparently wants to be a teenager with tattoos and a denim vest. Yeah, yeah, he does <laughs> just want to kind of be a pud. <laughs> and I think that that speaks to the creativity of a uh, straight cis 
white male. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will say his design made me think I was looking at one of those Final Fantasy movies. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. He, he, he looks does... very fucking like Square Final Enix. Fantasy protagonist. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, his, his avatar's name is Parzival. Um, which, as we will learn later, and I'm not going to get into, is the knight of the round table that went to search for the Holy Grail while by his lonesome. Uh, he searches for the location of his friend H, locating them on planet Doom, the most dangerous place in the Oasis where all the fighting happens. Yeah. And the PvP uh, area. Yeah. And he calls H, wanting to make plans for a race in 20 minutes, and H is in the middle of what they call an artifact hunt with two other characters. Hey, let's talk more about the mechanics of the Oasis, shall we? Uh, He's with these two other characters, Daito and Shao, and this is like a raid or something, I guess. Um, Artifacts are explained as these randomly powerful things that the developer Halliday littered all over the Oasis as motivators. And then there's some vague talk of people winning by getting them, but it's not, you know. Go anywhere, be anything, but some people can be more anything than others thanks to these artifacts. It's really unclear what winning means in the context of an infinitely vast online environment limited only by your imagination. That's the sort of place where you would think... Uh, maybe that's the secret trick of it because knowing what we end up knowing about Halliday, pretentious fuck. Yeah. The um, the whole point of it is winning, is imagining a win state. Ah, uh, I mean, well, you set your own win condition. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's you not a terrible by... message. Yeah, like maybe you could win by just getting some floppy hair. Yeah, and which which he can do by like switching a menu, and now his. His hair is all Wade would have, windy. Wade would have won immediately, and it wouldn't have been an issue. Oh, this movie could have been two hours shorter. Set yourself some realistic fucking goals. That's the message. That's my message. If I, if, When I do my remake of Ready Player One, right? I'm going to call it Ready Player Two, right? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it'll, it's going to be three minutes long, and it's going to be the character saying, you know what, I want floppy hair. And then it gives himself floppy hair. Credits roll. I win. Message at the end just says, set yourself some fucking realistic goals, you shitheads. <laughs> <laughs> Floppy has the best you're getting. So what is made clear about the rules of this world is that your avatar can be killed and upon respawn returns with none of your your acquired money and equipment. And we're shown various people in the real world. The first time that happened to me, I would not go on again. No, I'd be done. Yeah. I played Rust. Love it. Fuck it. I'm good. Yeah. Like, I've, I've, at, least, at least throw a Dark Souls mechanic in there. Or, like, a penalty. Like, I'd understand that. Like, a lot of games do that. Instead of just game over, it'll be like you lose a portion of money. Just seems very harsh. Again, I don't think it would become the worldwide phenomenon it did. It, that's what. That's one of my big problems, is human nature in this film has to be ignored for a lot of it to work. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Which that... we will get to with the fucking Easter eggs. Right. I think, well, I think the only way this works is if somehow... As it does in this film, the global economy is overtaken by this one big online game. And yeah, I guess that's the only way it works. Is if you is is if the game has basically enslaved everyone financially. Right, because then you know everybody has to participate in some way in it, and that can be you know what drives that economy forward. Yeah. That's that that sub that worker class. You know, it's that blue collar class. That we need kind in of every society to keep the fucking trains running. 
kind of paints Halliday in a uh, more sinister light when you think of it that way, that he basically enthralled the world. Well, and it's... Yes, actually. I think think that in a lot of ways, Halliday is the villain of this story. Um, and I think that there, there's a scene coming up that we're going to talk about that I, I think has some very important things to say about the current state of online communities and online platforms. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we will get there. Yeah. Um, Wade then goes on to talk more about the creator of the Oasis, James Halliday, who was a visionary uh, that launched the service in 2025 with his partner Ogden Morrow, who is uh, played by... Uh, God, what's his name now? Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg, thank you. The, uh, the delightful Simon Pegg. Uh, who... And I've got to say, like, the old age of makeup they put on him later in the film puts the shit they put on Guy Ritchie's face in Prometheus to shame. Right? Really oh, well done. He looks fantastic. He's exactly what I'd expect of an old... <laughs> old... Yeah. He's exactly what I'd expect of an old Of an man. old Simon Pegg. Uh, yeah, it's, he looks great. Uh, he's... He's delightful in this. I really He's like pretty, his yeah. role in this. Um, uh, he leaves the business a few years after this point, and we see uh, the pair delivering this stage presentation, introducing it. And Halliday, at this point, you know, we're, we're really shown him for the first time, and he is this guy who's probably on the spectrum, who, you know, lacks social skills. He's awkward, but he is funny and, he and he's performed charming. in a way, yeah, he was performed in a way where it wasn't, like... He's not alienating. Stupidly exaggerated. Right. Um, it, it was... There was a, a nice... I feel. I mean, I, I can't speak for people who are on the spectrum, but um, I, it felt to me like it was a fairly naturalistic, uh, non-joke-making performance it wasn't confrontational like at all it. about that aspect of him it didn't paint it in any sort of negative light in in fact it tries to humanize it uh in a way that it uh you feel like he's a person he's not uh, some caricature and yeah i i respect that actually because that's difficult to do i think and, and yeah it's it was just grace. very interesting that the they didn't make him the typical guy you expect in these films about, you know, the tech wizard. He wasn't this effortlessly charming, schmoozing, cooler than cool tech god. He's not he Elon was, Musk, despite yeah. having the impact that Elon Musk might want to have in this world. He was shy and awkward and, and, and as you say, though, still got charm, still able to make people laugh and, and, and like crack him. a joke. And be likable, yeah. yeah. He was just a likable guy, not that smartest dude in the room, too cool for school, tech guru that you see in a lot of these films and in some aspects of real life. And, and so it's perfectly believable that really the, the shortcoming there, the reason he doesn't seem to have friends, is more about his inability to reach out to people, not that he wouldn't be liked by people. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of... I think that's really important that, you know, it's that we don't portray these people as inable, incapable of being liked uh, because they're yeah. not. It's just, I think it's also telling that the avatar he has, the, the pre-recorded uh, avatar that we see throughout the film is way more um, uh, charming. It's not the right word. Way more evocative, way more expressive mm-hmm. because that he expresses himself better there. Yes. I thought that was a good duality of the 
the the character he's playing in uh, Oasis versus who he is offline. Well, and 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 really. Halliday has two characters in the Oasis because there's the representation of Halliday himself that presents the will and is, you know, uh, confident and if reserved, you know, has clearly has a goal, has had an idea that he's been working on and he's now delivering it to the world. And then there's Anorak, which is his, you know, uh, Elminster type wizard. Uh, yeah. that uh, has represented him as his character in the Oasis. And they're, they're both different from the real Halliday that was shown in these archival clips. Uh, really cool, the, the, the way that they developed a rounded, fleshed-out yeah. character. That... I think really everything about the performance of Halliday was, was a pretty big high point of the film, I think. Right, and for a character, who, it's, it's interesting because he is a character that is so completely central to everything in this story that we don't see a tremendous amount of but we're given enough to to make him feel like he deserves the importance that the story gives him so uh yeah on the whole i'm i'm really happy with the holiday character and how he's presented in this he's yeah i i don't remember much even of if him he from is secretly sinister and enslaved the world yeah yeah well there's he's he's irresponsible and it's led to the world's enslavement that's ultimately, I think, the, the, yeah. the trick to this. Uh, anyway, we, uh, he, he dies 15 years after that presentation, and now we see him dead with quarters on his eyes laying in a photon torpedo coffin. Ho-ho! Oh, yeah, why not? Uh, and he, the corpse sits up and explains that he's dead, and it turns out it's a video will that everybody on Earth is watching because, of course, everybody on Earth is, in the, is involved in the Oasis and spends most of their time there by this point. And the, the long and short is that he hid an Easter egg somewhere in the Oasis, and the first person to find uh, this egg will inherit Halliday's controlling interest in the parent company that owns the Oasis, Gregarious Games, and, of course, full control over the platform. Yeah. And because he's a nerd, he's built a whole fucking thing with three challenges to be rewarded with keys that lead to the egg. Got a problem with this? Go on. It's, it's not an Easter egg. If you tell them it's there and you make entire challenges leading up to it, that's a quest. Yeah. Yep. He gave them a quest, not an Easter egg. Yes. Well, he gave an them Easter a... egg is a thing you discover by accident. Now, now I'm going to semantic on your ass. The Easter egg is just an item, and yes, he's delivering them a quest to find this item. Boom. Don't call it an Easter egg. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, it's it's, it's, it's an not. Easter egg because he calls it's the object that. It's just an egg. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll reboom this on you, right? I know what Easter eggs look like. They're made of chocolate, or they're painted and hidden in gardens and in not America. made of gold shimmery light. That's just a golden egg. Just a golden egg. It's like a Easter golden ticket. Egg. <gasps> yeah. Oh my god. It... Oh no, I was thinking this when I was watching the movie. That's fucking Willy Wonka. Oh, of course it is. My <laughs> <laughs> whole fucking thing's Willy Wonka. Uh, he should have called it a golden ticket, because then that would also have been. I mean, I guess they can't then do their clever Atari thing at the end. That's what it was all for. But it's not an Easter egg. At best, it's a gold egg. Well, okay, so I, if I'm remembering correctly, and I could be wrong, I could be completely wrong about this, and someone may come up and correct me and say, no, you've totally forgotten the book, and I cop to this. I've read the book twice, but the last time I read it was like five years ago, 
and it was a miserable, awful experience the second time that I was only doing out of a sense of <laughs> obligation. Uh, and I, I thought about reading it again for this because it's not, it's not a long read and it's not a difficult read. It's just boring. Um, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. But if I'm remembering correctly, the game at the conclusion isn't Joust originally. Or, I mean, sorry, isn't Adventure originally. It's Joust. Oh. The like the one the one quest that's predicated on completing Release a video drive. game is Joust. It's 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 Joust, and it's actually uh. I think the first one, the first challenge has that. Like the challenges again, as I say, are like completely different from book to film. Right. Uh, and so, uh, Wade explains that nobody. It's not an Easter egg. No, it's not an Easter egg. Wade explains that nobody's found a key yet in the last five years, and most of the world has pretty much abandoned the hunt after the only... Okay, i got another issue here. Okay. This is where human nature comes into play again. Mm-hmm. There is no fucking way in five years someone didn't drive that car backwards. I know, I know, and there I is know. No You're getting fucking way ahead way of this the movie. Quest... You're getting way ahead There's of the no movie There's no fucking way this quest wasn't completed. Yes. All three of them within five Minutes. It's the first People thing I do in Lord every British. side-scrolling platformer game I've ever played since Super Mario Brothers. Right? Walk left. Go backwards. We're in a world of speedrunners who find out ways to break a game within moments. People have killed Lord British, who's meant to be indestructible. Um, people solved PT in two hours when it was designed to take two weeks. This, this is where, again, big massive world... Uh, virtual world that's enslaved all of humanity that i can believe i can't believe that it's taken five years to solve a game so not the way humans are so yes this this race has been discovered and nobody's been able to win at the race so the only people left are are this class of people dedicated to the pursuit that are called gunters which is short for egg hunter oh my god and this wealth that was weird yeah and that's straight out of the book too um and then this well-funded corporation, IOI, that's aiming to take over the Oasis, and they've got employees only designated by numbers, which is this horrible dystopian concept that I've never heard before. Uh, so Wade meets up with H, who will be racing in Bigfoot, and uh, Sub-Zero's just, you know, chilling out next to him in this scene. Hey! Hey! What else is he going to do? Uh... H has saved a spot for Wade at the head of the pack, but Wade opts to start in a rear position because, and this is where the economy comes in, he's broke, and this will allow him to snatch coins from racers ahead of him as they crash and are eliminated. And they drop all their money. Yeah. So he pulls his car out of his pocket, and oh my god, it's the Back to the Future DeLorean! Fucking hell. Okay, you know, I know that car. I know it from films. All right, so I'm going to tell you right off the bat, plain and simple, why the film is better than the book. Here, it can all be explained by the st- appearance of this DeLorean. Because when the DeLorean... Better graphics. When the DeLorean appears in the book, he says, I modded it out with fucking Kit from Knight Rider's beams going across the front and some oh. other stupid fucking thing. Oh, he put Ecto, he put Ghostbusters tags on the <laughs> going doors and changed the license plate to Ecto 88. That's what it was. 
Uh, that's the kind of shit that I saw people making fun of and expected in the film and was pleasantly surprised not to see. That, the pop culture overload. Right. Where it's not pop culture enough to just have the thing. Yeah. Yeah, they remove that stupid over-density. Uh, and so, I mean, it's still stupidly dense. So just imagine all the shit you missed. Because mm. uh, they took it out. Yeah, it's it's horrendous. Uh, as the race is about to begin, uh, Kaneda's bike from Akira pulls up next to Wade, and its rider exchanges a glance with him, and racing happens. Now, as it happens, Wade indicates that the rider of Kaneda's bike is a well-known gunter named Artemis. One by one, racers are eliminated as the race progresses. The Sixer Fixer. The Sixer Fixer. The Sixers is the, the nickname everyone has for the IOI employees that participate in the egg hunt. Uh, because, of course, they are all known by numbers, so they just call them Sixers generally because it's a number and it sounds cool, I guess. I was just thinking, yeah, like, they, they, they just picked one of the numbers yeah. that they're known for. Yeah, they just, they just picked a number. Tell you what, any, any one of those people who don't have six in their names must feel really shit. Yeah, that's got to suck for them. Well, I mean, and I think, it, you know, every time, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get it. They've all got these accounts. It's, it's, it's. Got to be a weird employee number situation for them. It must feel awkward. Anyway, the race goes through New York City, and it uh, it culminates in a chase with King Kong, and you get to see the uh, like you get to see the, the the skyline of Queens. Like, I bet I could have picked my house out from when I lived in in Queens in this sequence as mm-hmm. it moves through. But you get to see like the Silver Cup Studios sign. It's like it's a cool race. It looks neat. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the visuals in this film are really good. Yeah. And I was impressed by how much of it takes place in Oasis. Because a lot of these films, when they get adapted, like, you watch fucking Avengers, they spend most of the time out of their armor. Yeah. Just hanging about. Yeah. Like, this movie actually committed to sticking most of it in Oasis, yeah. which I like. And, and, yeah, and it doesn't, like, there's real-world stuff that's happening, and it's important, but it's not the focus because the, you know, well, the whole yeah. world is in the Oasis now. And that's the conceit. You know, they they very smartly put most of the film there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah. Wait, stop short at the end, uh, right before the finish line, because King Kong uh, basically gets between him and that. And he also prevents Artemis from finishing, grabbing her off her bike before it careens into the waiting hands of the giant ape. My problem with this sequence is that everyone's acting like they've never done this race before. Yeah. Like, like it's not known that this is how it's going to end with King Kong. And he even later says nobody gets past Kong. Why is everyone acting so shocked? True. It's just... Uh... True. I mean, I, I, I was thinking when I was watching it that it was a little weird that people were dying that early. Because if you've been playing the same... Right. Anyone who's been playing the same racetrack for five years is going to get pretty good at it. Now, you can attribute... You only need... You can attribute some of this to player interference, You can attribute some of this to player interference. I mean, some of it. Some of it. But you're right that a lot of them just look clueless. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's weird. Like, and, and these employees that have been working at IOI, they... Probably, I mean, they're just cycling them through. They're having them go respawn and come back. They're giving them, you know, company stored equipment because they have these infinite resources. I'm sure they give them just a basic loadout and send them back in. So, yeah, like, the skill of the player should be increasing even if their, like, equipment loadout crap isn't improving. 
I don't get it. Um, anyway, Human Wade, nature again. Human nature undoes so much of this film. Wade offers to have H repair the bike for her, and so they go to H's workshop. Uh, music note here. Uh, Prince's I Want to Be Your Lover, I think it is, is playing. Uh, in the background here, it's very subtle. In the background, it's a great song choice, but it's not a song choice that everybody's going to immediately recognize. I think it's perfect for H as a character. Um, I love it. I love that it's here. And uh, I got another question. Yeah. So if you can build anything, why do you need? Why do you need to repair shit? Why? Why do you need stuff? Like, I guess my qu- a better question would be, how the hell does modding work? Because I don't think they explain it in the movie. They don't explain how modding works. And uh, I think in the in the book, it does get some better explanation. Uh, H in, in the book is uh, explained as being a good coder and is coding these things that they're creating and inserting them into the environment. Much like Second Life uh, creators make assets and put them into the world. Right. Um, it does not explain to me... The damage model stuff or the necessity for repairing these things. Yeah, that and also it's how are you not a god in this world if you can make iron giants? Right. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, it, it, it obviously it takes time and energy and skill to make them clearly because it's something that everyone would be doing if it wasn't the case. But um, yeah, it is explained that, uh, H makes a lot of money making custom vehicles and, and stuff for people, and he's working on a replica of the Iron Giant at this point. Uh, Wade tries to show off for Artemis, and the two enter into a strange competition over who knows more about James Halliday. It's this sort of you know fanboy, dick-measuring contest stuff that people online love to do. Uh, Plus, it's very useful because it allows us to hear lots more pop culture references. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it doesn't really give me much in the way of insight into Halliday, other than knowing that he liked things and that I'm familiar with some of them. <laughs> but okay. That's, that's all it was there for. Uh, Wade does know a stupid amount about Halliday, but uh, Artemis is not particularly impressed by this. And they then argue over how far one has to be willing to go to protect the Oasis from IOI by hunting for the egg. Now, by this point, this sort of raises this sort of central conflict between these two characters because she's willing to risk it all for her reasons and he's not willing to risk it all. And so she's concerned about what that means for the future of the Oasis if someone who doesn't have the goal of saving it were to win the egg, right? Uh, because, you know, yeah. then they could just sell it to IOI and make a lot of money, but the the Oasis is then effectively destroyed. Uh, by this point, her bike's fixed, so she collects it and zhuzhes Wade's hair a bit before Thanos uses the Infinity Gauntlet to wipe her from existence. I'm sorry, I mean she uh, <laughs> leaves the Oasis. Oh, uh, dear. Wade... Was there any Marvel shit in it? There was no Marvel or Disney, was there? <laughs> Don't recall. I, I mean, but, but Disney owns Now that I'm thinking about it, now? it's fairly glaring. Yeah. That's interesting. No, so everything There, in there this... was a mention of the Millennium Falcon, but I don't think we see one. Yeah, I don't think we do either. So that's probably worth pointing out then. Um, all of these IP are controlled by 25 companies, and one of them is not Disney. <laughs> well, there we go. And therefore leads to 
some huge pop culture holes. And every, now that I well, think and, about and it. everything else in the world. <laughs> yeah, I thought I saw something that looked like Deadpool, but then I'm thinking if it was movie Deadpool, that's Sony, I think. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, oh, they could. Uh, th- this is when we start getting bogged down in who owns what, and I start feeling miserable again about corporate legal. But no, rights. But, but you're right. The X Men, the Fantastic Four, could have uh, appeared because they're both not Disney uh, licensed properties for films. Hmm. Ah. Yeah. The complexity if, if of all of had this is actually fascinating. Yeah. If if they'd have had the rights, we'd have seen Darth Vader front and center. Absolutely. We don't. Totally. Yes. There's, there's no way that they would not have had Vader in there. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, so Wade's aunt then calls after him looking for her VR gloves, and Wade also quickly leaves. And we're assaulted with an ad for a haptic bodysuit because I guess even Steven Spielberg isn't above this kind of hacky transition. Uh, crawling back in his window, Wade is assaulted by his aunt's boyfriend, who blames him for having been killed in that earlier artifact hunt we saw, where I guess he was a space marine. Uh, as it turns out, he'd invested the family's savings into power-ups for the battle, and now he's wiped them out. Which... Pretty stupid thing to do. It is, but this is a, uh, interesting thing to point out, that this is a thing that... A, kind of does happen in our world and almost certainly would happen in this world. That, yeah. that people, you know, having the expectation that, you know, I'm going to make a big score, I'm going to put everything I have into this and then winding up decimated. You know, that whole online gambling fixation, it's present here too. Like, Halliday is humanity's greatest monster. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, well, it's I mean, you can argue that maybe things would have been just as fucking awful were it not for the Oasis's existence. But the existence of the Oasis certainly didn't create a great world. Uh, yeah. It's um it's Is Pizza Hut making its money to deliver pizzas via drones in Oasis? Yeah. Yeah, the orders are being placed in the Oasis and then being delivered real world. And, and then with the drones. Yeah, we see this done later uh, when uh, Wade buys his uh, haptic suit. Uh, he he yeah. does his order online and then gets the box in the real world. Um, in the in the book, it it goes into all sorts of additional detail. At one at one point, after he has acquired the first key and after. IOI comes after him and he goes into hiding. He actually goes into hiding for a period of the book. The book drags this out a lot longer, like months pass in the course of the book. Whereas in the film, everything seems to happen within the period of like a week. Uh, once yeah. once things get moving, uh, it's it's many months in the book. He starts out pudgy and overweight, and as he attains success in the Oasis and gets the first key and starts getting endorsement deals from companies that operate in the Oasis and starts making a ton of money that way and goes sort of off the radar and gets himself a really nice apartment in Cleveland with a, you know, really thick bandwidth connection and a whole new rig and a new haptic suit and he's wealthy as fuck and hiding his identity, pretending to be uh, Bryce Lynch, the guy from Max Hedrum who created Max Hedrum. Uh, yeah, that's his alias. Um, 
Yeah, and that is that's the good Max Headroom reference. Would everyone be at least a bit pudgy if they're all wearing helmets? Well, Most he, people in this movie look svelte. He winds up he winds up incredibly fit because his new rig requires him to move. Uh, his old. Well, that's a fair point. Yeah, a lot of people are still walking around. Yeah, It'd be like a Pokemon Go, yep. but more dangerous because people can't see where they're right. walking. Right, that that meat space stuff is. Um, you know, actually kind of a healthy thing. And in the book, it's sort of presented as there are some not healthy options that are, you know, sort of the lower class solutions because the other things aren't affordable. And and if you have the money to get the good shit, you're also going to get into shape. Uh, it's it is there is a bit of commentary about the ability that wealth provides for you to create a life for yourself that's livable. Yeah. Um. Right. So uh, anyway, the family savings are wiped out and this culminates in a bit of a domestic dispute, which Wade's aunt threatens to kick Wade out if he touches her stuff again. And that night, Wade reflects on something that Artemis had said about Halliday hating rules. And he returns to the Oasis to an archive of Halliday's personal journals, which is maintained by a smarmy robot curator. Now, Wade requests to see a company party from 2029 that the curator comments he's seen many, many times before, uh, during which Halliday and his partner Ogden Morrow have an argument about the Oasis. This, to me, is like the most important scene for us culturally in this right now that we live in. Mm -hmm. Uh the argument they're having is about the expanding role that the Oasis is having in society and how they can't just let it do its thing. They need Morrow is advocating for the creation of more rules and for them taking responsibility for this thing that they've made. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, Halliday wishes it could just return to being the game as it was in the early days of the service. But the fact of the matter is that that's impossible. And that's where we are with things like Facebook and Twitter and these companies that are now controlling so many aspects of our lives that we never expected them to be controlling or or even just having a significant part in. In, in ways that we never considered that they could. And we need rules for that. We need those companies to step up and take responsibility for the things that they've created and what's being done on their platforms using their tools. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, not to like get on my soapbox about this, but this this scene right here, we should all be looking at this and seeing what happens to the fucking oasis and what a nightmare it is at this tipping point where it's about to become an even worse representation of itself should the wrong people get control of it. But we need to realize that the thing's broken now. And it needs to be fixed by the people who have the power to do it. And that probably means maybe creating some rules that get rid of people who are weaponizing your platform to attack people. I mean, maybe. Might be a start. I'd have liked to have seen that more in this film. How that kind of shit's handled. Well, and that's it. It's only really 
hinted at and only Lego surface level and only with here, everything in this. Only here in this scene and someone needed to and it's funny that the shining is in this cuz someone needed to Kubrick up this film and make it their own thing and actually tackle some, some ideas. Yes. Yes. It hints at them. And I think, you know, for yeah, I am examining this fucking film on as deep a level as I will per, as I could possibly permit myself to. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this and I see that and my assessment is immediately that this is a commentary. But it's I don't think people are necessarily going to get that for the most well, part. Well, the, the main the main problem is is that Halliday is so sympathetically portrayed. And he is, yes. That he comes across as whimsical and charming for his not wanting roles, rather than, actually, this is kind of dangerous. Yes. This is, and and he, it, this is the point, and I think you're, you are right that Halliday is the villain here. And Halliday is a libertarian. I'm sorry. Halliday's a conservative libertarian who wants things to go back to the way, back to when things were good. I'm just going to brace for the weaponization of social media (laughs) after this goes out. (laughs) But that's, I mean, he's a sympathetic libertarian. Sure. Uh, He is not the dick that Elon Musk is. He is not the dick that Peter Thiel is. Yes, he's not a dick. He's just, as you say, irresponsible. Yeah, and 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 that's. It's great and all that he's endearing, but he's still destroying the world. Anyway, all right, I'm I'm done. Done with it. Uh, so anyway, uh, they have this argument, and uh, as Wade is walking away from the display, he hears Halliday musing to himself that he wished they could go backwards and realizes that this is the solution to the first key challenge, that he's supposed to drive backwards. As, as you note, it would have happened immediately. Yeah, in, you're right, immediately. Yeah. Like, or at the very least, one race, someone would think, this is bullshit, I'm just going to crash into this wall back here, fuck this shit. I can fix my car, screw it. Yeah, like at that point, it's like, I've already lost everything. Oh yeah, I'm sure you've died at some point attempting this and gone back to zero. And then just frustratedly slammed reverse. Or at the very least, just just wheeled it back to be like, what's back here? Mm -hmm. People always want to find out what is not presented in front of them. (laughs) Everyone's always looking for a deeper (sighs) meaning, even if it's not there. Hundreds would have rode backwards. This entire podcast seems to be predicated on that idea. <laughs> if we can if we can make two hours out of fucking dead or alive, <laughs> then we can we can drive, we can backwards, drive backwards in a racing game. Sake, yes. At the next race, Artemis pulls up and marks uh, and some marks mocks Wade for not wanting to risk his precious life savings again but can tell from his expression that he's figured something out. The race begins, and after all the drivers have left the start, Wade opens the driver's side door of the DeLorean and reverses. This is the worst fucking car you could possibly have for this purpose. <laughs> I'd just yeah, like to note that. that. I, I'd, have, I'd have gotten a rear view mirror. Right? 
Yeah, well, that's, yes, that's the thing. The DeLorean has all of that shit in the rear window that would In the rear, yeah, that's the, the problem. <laughs> Idiot. I mean, it's, I'd, I'd have just modded that out. Right. That's what, That get yeah. back window. Well, and. Like, the DeLorean is useful for traveling through time. It's not good for driving. And as we have noted, or as, as we will discover, you can fail to program reflective services correctly so that they show what's actually behind you instead of something that's being portrayed. Yeah. <laughs> this was easily fixed. Open the fucking yep. wing doors, for God's sake. But look how cool I am. Uh, he finds a hidden track that moves him beneath the entire race, able to witness the other drivers and the obstacles as they move into place, eventually just depositing him at the finish line. Floating trumpets blare in this sort of plaza thing, and Holiday's avatar, Anorak, appears to congratulate Wade, giving him the bronze key and a clue, and making Parzival's name appear on the top of the scoreboard. Cut to the boardroom of IOI, where executives are questioning the company's future in light of Parzival's recent key acquisition, but CEO, president, I don't know what is, he says, fuck you, we're making money hand over fist in the financial industry, which this is sort of the exposing of how IOI really makes its money, and it's this indentured servitude crap. Um, that they are, uh, I, I would assume, Amazon mechanical turking people out to perform tasks in the Oasis for businesses. I mean, that's how it worked in the book, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Uh, and and so it's, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, then he shows off all the pop-up ads that he's planning to cram into the Oasis once they've acquired the egg, saying that they can occupy 80% of a user's visual field of vision before it induces a, uh, a seizure. <laughs> Awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, but but very sort of stock standard bad corporate bad guy in the internet That's age, it. too. Again, it's not... uh, it was too... And I, I love skewering the corporate side of things. I mean, that's a big part of my job. We did four years. <laughs> yes. But that, when it's like, oh, we can do this without inducing... It, again, just a bit too on the nose. Just a touch yeah. too obvious. Wade goes shopping with H, uh, having received a lot of money along with the key, uh, buying a holy hand grenade and a Zemeckis cube, explaining neither of these, but making sure to provide information on a bomb that destroys every avatar on a planet, and suggesting that IOI will most certainly have bought one because they buy everything. Sorrento goes to the Oasis. His avatar is a beefy guy in a suit. Okay. Uh, he, I guess it's it's supposed to be what a corporate dude would think of as a badass. It, you know. Yeah, I like. I was a bit disappointed when I first saw his avatar, but then as it went on, I was like, well, I guess he would just make himself like him, but overly muscled. Yeah, yeah. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, that's what they do in the book as well. Uh, Wade. Uh, is he wants he wants Wade? Serena wants Wade, and he meets up with a dude named Irock. <laughs> this is the T.J. Miller character. Yeah, and I did like I did like Irock, and I liked the, the when they just say Irock, 
yeah. you don't think I rock, and and then, and then you, you realize, oh, it's like, oh, I see. It's yeah. clever. I mean, he is. He strikes me as the guy who has been online forever and is a dick, but kind of like it's all done for him, right? He's seen it all on the internet, and he's kind of passe about it. And and he, he is... They did him well, like the big introduction of this big badass monster with a skull chest with like actual eye holes going through him. Really good design, by the way. Yeah, he looks fantastic. Um, and then, you know, immediately starts talking about carpal tunnel syndrome string. in his neck. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's just, yeah, just this schlubby sounding, apathetic. It was, it was good. And I'm glad it that was, they never show good... who he is on the other side of it. Like, of all the characters who are significant avatars in this, we never we never see what he looks like on the under end of that. And, no. and, and I think that I like that. I like that that's sort of left to the imagination because you can, I suppose, if you want, have the sort of stereotypical 400-pound guy in some parent's basement somewhere visual if you want, but he really literally could be anybody. And, yeah. and I, I, I don't... Plus, I think it would have strained the realms of credulity even further if yet another person conveniently lived in Columbus. Yeah, yeah. Although, if that's where... They could have just cut to him after he died something like at his in his chair, wherever. I mean, you do want close I, proximity I to the servers didn't. for the best possible connection. Wow. So you, you'd think everyone... Especially after there. the bandwidth riot. Right. <laughs> Uh, so the uh, he, he Sorrento goes to this IROC guy to make arrangements uh, to deal with Parzival, and he also learns about an orb that he'd been desiring has it's been acquired, and it creates an impenetrable shield. I wonder if that's going to come into play later. Probably. Uh, Wade, in narration, explains that five people are now in the scoreboard, uh, and they're all his friends because none of them can keep their fucking mouths shut. Uh, plus Artemis, who figured it out on her own after seeing Wade. And they get a clue about a leap not taken and a creator who hates his creation. So Wade scans his wall of holiday press clippings for clues and comes to the conclusion that this relates to Ogden Morrow's wife, whom Halliday had gone on one date with once before the two of them got together. So Wade heads back to the archives. But now he's famous as shit and getting mobbed by people's avatars. He gets dragged away by Goro, who takes him under some... Goro, Goro, I'm familiar with I, it. I'm familiar with Goro. Takes him under some stairs, and then Goro's chest explodes with a, a, an alien chest burster to scare... I know him. what that is, I know, I know what, what that is. is. <laughs> I really like the way this plays out. With the, I did, in fairness, I like The alien bursts out of the chest, and then it's moved up like it's undoing a zipper from inside Goro to reveal that it's Artemis with this sleeve of the chestburster head on her arm. And what what made it work for me was when she does that, she just starts, like, opening and closing its mouth while, like, going... <laughs> like just snapping her teeth together, and it was just really like adorably animated. Yeah, yeah they did a great job on it. Uh, she is like, dude, you like you can't be out in public now. You're too famous. Here's some Clark Kent glasses to hide your identity. Which, haha, I know what that would. I know that reference. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's from something. And then they do the joke. 
Spider-Man. They do the joke where he says he's not going to wear that, and then they cut to him wearing it. <laughs> I've never seen that done before. That's so good. Eh, standard joke, but, yeah. you know. Uh, no. They visit a memory of Halliday, and Sorrento is there as an intern. Uh, and he's uh, suggesting all sorts of ways to monetize the Oasis with subscription tiers. <laughs> it's explained that Sorrento got his company going on the basis of his Halliday knowledge because of this egg quest. Which, and in truth, he has very little knowledge of Halliday, uh, except about how Halliday likes his coffee. And as seen here, Halliday ignores him except to compliment the coffee that's been delivered. And so Wade and Artemis are, uh, keep watching, and Halliday talks about a date that he went on with a woman who would later become Ogden Morrow's wife. And Wade says, this is the only reference in the entirety of the Oasis to this woman, whose name is Kira. Uh, something that the, the curator just doesn't believe could be the case, and makes a wager with, with uh, Wade over it. Uh, yeah. Now, here's the thing. The reason for this is explained later, uh -huh. but the way the film is set out, it was too hard to believe that the robotic owner of this archive could not know this. Yeah. Well, and it's... I say owner, you know, the the guy running... The avatar that's there, it. yeah. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I guess for me, the tricky thing about this is that my first impression was that the curator wasn't an avatar... So much as an it comes AI across like an NPC, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was a... so I was very confusing for me to watch this scene and be like, "How does he not know this? He's like Ask Jeeves, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. literally." And and I I, I want to I, I I can't remember the book specifically how it addresses this. I, but uh, that's not it. Ogden Morrow comes into the the story in a pretty different way. Uh, he winds up. Uh, sort of deus ex machining uh, his way into the story, sort of plucking Wade and the crew out of uh, a bad situation and then hooking them up with all sorts of top-of-the-line equipment to go into the final battle. So he's a lot more involved in the egg hunt towards the end and acts almost like a sponsor for the uh, high five. Uh, but in, in this, it's, yes, it's, it's this uh, other thing. And... Uh, he loses the the curator loses this bet with Wade over the presence of the existence of other references to Kira and, and gives him a quarter. Wade is completely convinced that Kira is at the center of the whole quest, and so he and Artemis make plans to meet a few nights later and uh, explore because she has an idea of what this could mean. So at H's warehouse, Wade tries on different outfits for his date, settling on Buckaroo Bonsai, which. Okay, I recognize that. Uh, I don't know that the audience is going to recognize Buckaroo Banzai. No, they say Buckaroo Banzai so many times because they know people won't get it. Yeah, uh, which, and and that is, I mean, that's a deep cut. Have you seen Buckaroo Banzai across the, I think, it's on. It's on my watch list. Fascinating movie. Uh a very, very high concept. It, for people who aren't familiar, Buckaroo Banzai was an attempt to create a pulp style, uh, uh, a movie that paid homage to the pulp stories of the mid-20th century. 
these these novels that would have running serial characters and, and you would have to sort of keep with them because there would be all of these references to things that had happened earlier in them and uh, you wouldn't, you know, they would just casually mention, like comic books used to do. It's like, hey, see issue number, blah, 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 for details, shit like that. Uh, so th- what they did is they made this film that didn't have any of that other shit and just presented it to you like it was, hey, here's like episode god knows how many in how many episodes enjoy and it's this weird out of place kind of brilliant thing if you're willing to go along for its ride uh there's a reason it's a a cult film there's a reason it's in here uh and i and i i would tell people to watch that before watching this just because that's a really great movie and this is this is good (laughs) but um it has has john lithgow in it and um uh, that was the predominant reason it was on my list. Christopher list. Lloyd and yeah. Peter Weller is Buckaroo Banzai and amazing in it. Um, it has Jeff Goldblum in an early role who's fantastic in it. It's a, it's a really good, interesting, quirky film uh, about a guy who is a rocket scientist slash brain surgeon slash rock star. <laughs> it's so good. It's Watch it. Anyway, back to this. He settles on his Buckaroo Banzai costume uh, as H is warning him that Artemis might be taking advantage of him to win the egg quest and that, oh, she might be a dude, by the way. Remember, this is the internet. Wade goes to the nightclub planet to meet Artemis and people are floating around and dancing in air in this place. Uh, Someone takes a selfie with him, which uh, alerts Irock and and then goes to alert Irock to his presence. So Irock has, you know, people everywhere. Then Artemis shows up, and it's explained that this is one of the first nightclubs in the Oasis. It was started shortly after that date that uh, um, Halliday had with uh, Kira. And she believes that with the copy key, copper key, jumping into this anti-gravity well in the center of the club will activate the challenge. So they do this, and that doesn't do anything. So then they try to dance together to start it. And Wade fires up, staying alive, and they do this disco sequence. This is one of the more like explicit, like, hey, here's this thing you know song things. Uh, and as they dance, she flirts with him by asking what type of haptic suit he's wearing and, you know, starts feeling him up. And it's it's very uh, teenage sexuality awkward activation going on. Yeah. She gets his cock out and wanks him off yeah. and he sprays all over the other people who are dancing in the air. And they're like, ah, oh, fucking hell, stop it. And he's like, no. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, he is in his van where no one can, can see him or be struck by the real world semen ejaculating from the end of his very erect penis. <laughs> yeah, that just goes all over his mouth in the universe lunchbox. <laughs> like all the other times. Uh, yeah, you can barely make <laughs> you can barely make out Trap Jewel's face now. So, uh... They, Man at arms looks like a ghost. And, and against against their protest, against Artemis's protest, Wade tells her his real name as he's trying to set up a real world date. Uh, this gives Irock, who's been listening in, all the information that he needs. Uh, suddenly, IOI forces break through the wall of the nightclub, and shooting starts happening. Uh, pinned down, Wade uses the Zemeckis cube he bought which rewinds time 60 seconds. Hey, that's a pretty interesting item that I cannot understand how it could possibly function in this universe. 
the best I could think of was that everyone is consciously still aware, but their avatars are forced to move backwards. That's the only thing I can think of for this. To and work. what happens to the and it avatars has to be a limited already field. died? I mean, there's a question. <laughs> right? It don't. I get it. It don't make sense. Yeah. That was the best I could do, yeah. like to make this work in my head, so that I could enjoy the film and not right. cry. Yep. It, no, I mean it's just it, you, it, you. This is one of those things you literally just have to be like, okay, I guess. Uh, escaping into uh, the hallway where they entered the nightclub and then not continuing to run despite what is about to immediately happen behind them. I'm confused. They stopped to have uh, an a, 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 a argument and Artemis is pissed about the whole I'm in love with you revelation because she's in the hunt for a purpose, which is to prevent IOI from taking over the Oasis because her dad wound up in debt and in one of their loyalty centers where he worked until he died. Irock and Sorrento get to talking on the phone as Irock has now found Wade's identity based on the first name and the type of haptic suit that he recently ordered online. Ha ha! Uh, Sorrento then goes and speaks with Finale Xandor. I love that name. Uh, She's the one who uh, runs the division that manages all of the loyalty centers. She's the financial division head. And uh, he convinces her to help him deal with this Wade situation in, in some way that's not really clear, but obviously not going to be legal. Wade, returning from his van space where he does his, returning to his van space where he does his VR, finds a message from Sorrento waiting for him. So he logs into the Oasis and is taken to a, a I mean, I guess he's taken to Sorrento's office. Like he's seeing a visualization of Sorrento's office in the Oasis while Sorrento is seeing a hologram of him in his very real office. Yeah, and that makes me wonder. And this is actually what I thought the movie would be, and I was pleasantly surprised it wasn't, but then this made me question it. Is he's seeing a representation of the office, mm-hmm. right? Not the real office? Well, I think he's seeing the real office. Like, they're projecting the real yeah. office to him in the Oasis, just as... In his eyes. Yeah, just yeah. as he's being visually projected into the room by them. But then later on... Sor- uh, yeah. Sorrentus Sorrento. is tricked. Yes, he's Sorrento rather is tricked because right. a very because, realistic well, rendition of it. Yes, it's because way. they did this that he is then later. And it just makes tricked. me wonder why Oasis doesn't look like the real world. Why? Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Well, I mean, I don't know. If 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 the graphics are capable of that, that is a. It just seems to me like Oasis is technologically deficient compared to what it could be. It has be. a computer animated sheen to it that seems like it might not be necessary if you can do this. Although we never like totally see the office through Wade's eyes either. So it's hard to say like how photorealistic it is or or, or, or how you know if it if it just works like a Well certainly it was good enough to trick Sorrento later. Right, yeah. Because it feels to me like this is the Chekhov's gun moment to establish it, well, it that we can fake an off. It is, but uh, you know, and 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 you can maybe attribute it to specifically H's skill at modding and and maybe. attention to detail. But anyway, uh, just seems weird. It does. Why Freddy Krueger wouldn't look exactly like Freddy Krueger, so- rather than a computer version. Sorrento tries to tempt Wade with a job at IOI and and suggests that he's just like Wade and he cares about all the stupid pop culture shit Wade does. 
using information fed to him via an earpiece to prove it. Uh, also, Sorrento is, I guess, incapable of remembering his incredibly easy password because it's just lying around there on his computer chair. He's too corporate to remember passwords. He's too corporate to remember capital B O S O five five M A N sixty nine. Bossman sixty nine. I've, I've already committed that to memory. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know his password. Uh, Wade rejects the offer, and Sorrento gets threatening, revealing that he knows who Wade is and where he lives, and that nobody's going to notice when he's killed. Uh, leaving the Oasis, Wade tries to call his aunt to ward her. Why did he have to leave the Oasis to do that? Don't know. Uh, as drones are delivering bombs around their trailer in the stacks. Oh, yeah, that, it would have been quicker, It would have been it? quicker if he'd never left the Oasis. Yeah. But the boyfriend answers and is, predictably, a dick. And rather than giving the phone to his aunt, he just sort of bitches out Wade, and uh, the bombs explode, and the entire stack of trailers collapses as Wade... Uh, runs back from it you know it does that thing where you know if he'd taken a few more steps forward he might have been crushed but he has to turn around and run from it instead i've seen that done done before he returns to his van to next warn his online friends that ioi might be coming for them as well and he's put in a sleeper hold by i like to think after watching his aunt died he just wanted to go in there and have a quick game of pong he's he's instead put to a sleeper hold by a mean looking bald dude and when he comes to, he's in some building filled with tents, and a girl is there whom he recognizes by voice as Artemis, but introducing herself as Samantha. And they go out on a rooftop, and the wind blows her hair, revealing her strawberry tattoo over her, sorry, not strawberry, birthmark, strawberry birthmark over her, her one eye. She is yes, gorgeous. Which we're supposed to believe is hideous. We're supposed to believe she is freakish and ghastly. Um... She's not. I mean, we need to believe that she feels that she is gross and 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 disgusting because of this thing. It's just not even portrayed though, well enough. Even to well, even though it's plain across. to everybody who looks at her that it's not. And I, I don't want to bash this too hard. Like, on the one hand, yes, it's kind of. It would be nice if they had presented someone less. Uh, who who less effectively meets what we would consider to be modern beauty standards, I guess, is is where I'm going with that. But at the same time, I think the thing about it is more that she can't see past this thing that she has, which is not, to other yeah. people, so I, dramatic. I understand and so yeah. I don't want to back because I don't know how that kind of insecurity manifests in people because I don't I don't have it. I have my own whole host of other That's insecurities true, yeah. about how I look and 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 who I am. But yeah, you know, I, I I would find it difficult to judge. I mean, that. I think I'm fucking gorgeous, so I and don't I right. can't really relate to this. You are one hundred percent correct, sir. <clears throat> Wade comments on how it's so much slower uh, on their rooftop where they're talking, and in the context of this movie, I really fucking agree. This is where it <laughs> drags the whole goddamn thing down. Uh, it's also uh, another place where the, as I'd said before, the book really dramatically diverges, or this film dramatically diverges from the film, or from the book in this particular instance, uh, where he goes into hiding on his own for a long time, and it takes him a long time to, to get 
hooked up with this sort of idea of a resistance movement that Artemis is involved in and bringing together all of his friends and forming their sort of, oh, you know, we're not a clan, but we really are because we're all friends kind of thing. He, it, They chop, I would say, a good 20% of the book out simply by jumping to this point. Right. Um, and thank God. Probably better for the flow of the film, although it does, of course, bring up that whole, oh, they're all in the same place yes. already. That's convenient kind of yes. thing. So it is this, probably for the best they did it, even if it does create a little bit of uh, yeah. added... They are much more all over the place and eventually converge in Cleveland, uh, in, yeah. or in in Columbus, I'm sorry, in the, in the book. Um, that's why later we see H has a van. H drove that van from another state to get there in the book. Yeah. Uh, so Artemis comments that she, that uh, Wade's forgotten what it's like to be outside. And as they seem to be moving closer in one of those awkward we're about to kiss moments, she has a revelation. Cut to them getting into some VR rigs, and she explains that the leap has to do with the date that Halliday went on, not some future date that never happened. You know, it's it's that he never attempted to kiss her, she thinks, or something went wrong. And yeah, that's I mean, that's what it is. That's what she thinks it is. And so they go figure out what movie they went to to see instead of going dancing like she would have wanted. And this is uh, they, they learn it's The Shining. And so bringing that up from the archives, this takes them to the Overlook Lodge where the typewritten stack of novel work that Jack Torrance has been working on that says all work and no play makes Jack a dull, blo- dull boy is all formatted in the shape of a key. And there's a timer next to the typewriter. And Stephen, this is, I'm just speaking straight to Stephen right now. You know, you know what's up, Stephen. This is a way better homage to your friend than AI was. This is, I'm, I mean, I was blown away by how effectively they used footage from The Shining, integrated these characters in it, and made it all feel like it belonged. I, I loved it. Oh, no, I, I love the, the Shining sequence. It is. It, I, I have very few complaints about this whole portion of the And book. I'm going to make it even better for you now because I'm going to tell you what the book did. The book did War Games. And the challenge, uh. the challenge for War Games is to play out the entire movie scene for scene in the Matthew Broderick role. Oh. It is... It's not as it, good as The it, Shining. It, it, it's A, not as good a movie, and B, it's a terrible, like, game design. It would make an awful movie sequence as yes, well. Yes, it would. Uh, <laughs> no wonder they changed that yeah, shit. But, you know, I mean, obviously... Imagine if this movie was an extra two hours and whatever. I don't know how much war, how long War Games oh, is, but like we're going to find out at some point, movie. I think, because it's probably on our list somewhere. Uh, but but yeah, that'd be great. They bring in Matthew Broderick. <laughs> no, they just they just, they just play the War Games yeah. halfway through. Yeah. yeah, they just put the movie in. And don't don't even bother with. Uh... <laughs> in fact, I want to make a cut of this movie now that replaces The Shining <laughs> with War Games as it was always intended to be. Oh my God! The real director's cut of Ready Player One. Uh, but it's this is I mean it's amazing. It's so well executed, and 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 they had this movie that wouldn't work 
in the context of making this book into a film. And here now Steven Spielberg gets to pay homage to a friend, one of the greatest film directors ever to have lived, despite the fact that he was a problematic asshole. And I think we can all be comfortable acknowledging that uh, with, you know, not my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, my, my favorite Stanley Kubrick film is, is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. But mm-hmm. uh, probably... I always struggle with The Shining because I, th- I find it too funny to be scared. Yeah. I, I enjoy watching it every now and then. I think I enjoy more the conspiracy theories and the deep examinations yes. of The Shining. Yes. There's that documentary about Room people who read too that's it room 237 i love that documentary way more than i like the movie yep. and there's a website which i forget the name of which like has all sorts of theories right like down to torrents like interfering with his son and how the hotel is designed like in-depth lengthy essays and i find them fascinating reads yep, i'm but the movie and my mother told me this story because she said she went and saw it when it was out in the theaters and the shot of uh, Jack Nicholson, like, looking outside at his family, smiling creepily. She said the whole theatre started laughing. <laughs> and that's been my problem with the movie, is I think it's too funny. <laughs> my, uh, I, I also have a My Mom Went and Saw a Stanley Kubrick movie in a theatre story. Uh, my mother saw 2001 A Space Odyssey twice in the theatre and mm. fell asleep both times. <laughs> she couldn't, couldn't make it through, <laughs> which I, I then... I, I'm, maybe maybe it's genetic. I managed to get through 2001 the first time I watched it on home video, but thereafter I used it as a sleep aid to help me deal with my insomnia. Uh, wow. I would put it on, and and it's so slow that by the time the bone would go up in the air at the end of the of the Rise of Man, I I'd be unconscious. Uh, I, that's it's a similar problem I have with The Shining. I mean, I appreciate I I appreciate Kubrick's filmmaking style. And that in the long, slow shots, and I recognize what he's doing. I just can't watch it all the time, <laughs> and 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 it it feels uh, just too slow for me. And that's why I think the comedy uh, can so overtake the horror of it at points because that tension is dragged out so long that any opportunity yeah. to laugh at it and break that is is taken. Uh, that said. If the rotting old woman was giant and had a massive act oh, yeah. during that maze scene, The Shining would have been an amazing film. It would have completely, yeah, completely solved all the problems I had with it. <laughs> uh, so they get into The Shining, and as they're trying to figure out what to do next, H, who reveals to show that he's never seen The Shining before, follows a tennis ball down a corridor to find the twins standing in front of the elevator. H attempts to follow them, calling the elevator just as Wade warns them not to, and the blood comes pouring out, carrying them through the halls of the Overlook and past the New Year's Eve photo, which has Halliday and Kira uh, in the place of Jack. It's uh, everything about this sequence I love. Arrogant. I love it all. Um, H winds up in room 237, and Lorraine Massey comes out of the tub to seduce him. H decides to roll, or, and I say him, and I keep saying I'm trying to be as gender non-specific with H as possible because the character is presented as male up to a point in the film when it's revealed that the person playing H is not. But yeah, um, decides to roll, the, and and then this sets up 
more about um, H than I maybe needed to know because H is willing to, to roll with this right here. And they're, uh, they're making out. And then he looks in the mirror, or H looks in the mirror and sees uh, in the reflection the, the, old, the old hag. And uh, some stabbing happens. And uh, then it was nice that transition from the um, you know beautiful alive woman to rotting old woman was nicely done. I like the the shot of her just the face just collapsing in on itself while she was laughing. If I recall correctly, I also uh, respect. I have respect for the way that they utilized the footage of uh, Lorraine Massey coming out of the tub. And uh, successfully blocked the breasts from being exposed for our pleasure because this is a PG-13 movie. Yeah. You don't want to expose the breasts for our pleasure in a PG-13 movie. But they still used the scene, just in context, effectively blocking it with H. Very, very nicely cut together. Yeah, uh, like everything in this fucking... If if the whole movie were just this, it would be my favorite movie this year. A movie where they just, like, go through different movies mm-hmm. looking for stuff? That's a fucking story right there. Yep. And, oh, God. And that, and now this, this like, proves a template for how well that could be executed. Oh. God, we call the movie Ready Movie Boys. And it's about two young boys, Conrad and Jim, and they go through all of the great films, and they're brilliant in them. But we don't do the whole of War Games as Matthew Broderick. And they, and they ruin them. They ruin them all. <laughs> they ruin. They wreck them. <laughs> uh, the, the 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 hag then tra- he's uh, H is then transported to the hedge maze where the hag is now giant and attacks them with a, a big axe. Um, there is the axe through the door thing, but the, here's Johnny yeah. never appears, which totally fine. Clearly, they they felt that they, they needed to have yeah, Jack the axe to sign well, off. They, I think they feel like they need, felt like they needed to have the axe there but they didn't necessarily need to have Jack Torrance there because the Jack Torrance figure in this scenario we've already seen has been replaced with Halliday. So, yeah, yeah. You know, uh the uh, so the giant Lorraine attacks with the axe and and then Wade and Artemis pull H through a hedge and and he emerges out of a freezer in the hotel kitchen. So the group now reunited heads back to room two thirty seven. Uh, the rest of the group having acquired the key to enter that room during H's misadventure. And as they go, Kira's name comes up in conversation and H recalls having seen the New Year's Eve party photo uh, and Kira having been there. And they return to that, and Artemis realizes that not having kissed Kira was the leap not taken. So music is heard from a nearby ballroom, and they go into it, and they find it's filled with floating zombie dancers over a bottomless pit, and Kira sort of in the middle of it. Which Artemis, again, being a Halliday head like all of these, recognizes it as a level from one of the developer's early games, and jumps to a zombie, which then transports the rest of the team out of the movie. And so moving from zombie to zombie, Artemis eventually reaches Kira and asks her to dance, which completes the challenge. Uh, Anorak is summoned and gives Artemis the second key and another clue. Now, back at IOI, the Sixers are hard at work at solving the Shining Challenge, having discovered its location by seeing Artemis move at the scoreboard and going to where she was last seen. Uh, Meanwhile, Sorrento and Finale discover that Wade's still alive. 
and set their sights on the bald dude with a distinctive face tattoo that had kidnapped him for Artemis earlier. Yeah. Now, here's another problem with this Oh, do film, go right? on. Don't, don't make your kidnappings guy and your groceries guy the same guy. <laughs> Especially if he's got a very distinctive face tattoo in a world where drones have symbol and logo recognition. Don't. Good tip. Have him wear a mask at least if he's doing his kidnappings. Or if he's going out to get the groceries. Pick one of these activities. One of the, yeah, one of them. <laughs> they have the guy who goes out and kidnaps Wade be the same guy who's picking up some veg for them. <laughs> so he takes that back. Is he the only one allowed out the house? Uh, Are know. the others tagged? He takes that back to the hideout, and so that's basically told IOI where they are. Wade and Samantha hang out trying to, de- to decipher the third clue. They have a tender moment where Samantha thinks she says she thinks Wade's going to win because he really understands Halliday, but IOI security forces appear and start arresting people. It's unclear what authority these people actually have to, like, I don't know. I'll say this. I was confused at the end when the, <laughs> the real cops showed up. Yeah. yeah, like, that's the first time we've seen real law enforcement, and I was like, well... Surely they're in the pocket of, of IOI. No, 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 they're arresting him. Oh, they're not above the law, but they seem to rule everything. It, Very yes, confusing. It's, it's almost as if they just wanted evil corporation and everything that comes with it, but they needed the other stuff. Uh, I mean, I guess there's some, there's pro- I mean, there's some probably some law that allows them to hunt down debtors and put them in the loyalty centers. That's That sounds like uh, the kind of thing libertarians would dream up. Um. <laughs> mm. Anyway, uh, Samantha shunts Wade into a secret back alley exit, and uh, she's then cornered by Finale, and it's revealed that she's inherited her father's debt, which also sounds like a very libertarian thing, and she's going to be taken to a loyalty center. Um, Wade escapes, only to be immediately set upon <laughs> by a young woman who turns out to be H. It's it's just like he's just being handed from one set of people to the next. He has no actual autonomy of his own. He has <laughs> he's he's just there to be moved around like a piece on the board, as the most important piece on the board to be moved around by other people. It's yeah. Uh, <clears throat> they run to H's decommissioned mail van, which is being identified by a drone, when another dude leaps out with a baseball bat. That's Daito. And shows in the van too, and shows a brassy eleven-year-old. I like show. <laughs> That's yeah. fun. Uh, Wade says they have to rescue Artemis, and H seems to have a plan cooking, which is based on Wade having seen Sorrento's office. So Artemis comes to the loyalty center, and, and I say comes to, I mean comes to, as in regains consciousness. Uh, standing in yeah, there, there's no mass of the universe lunchbox nearby. No. Eyes, so. no. <laughs> Uh, she's in a little box and unable to remove her VR headset. And in the Oasis, she's dressed in a jumpsuit and being ordered to plant explosives. Uh, this is a weird thing to have to do to plant explosives on a bridge. Yeah. It's kind of an odd mechanical Turk job. It's a weird, like, you'd think they'd just have them farming. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that the soldiers can do the charges, not the people you probably don't want seeing the 
shady shit you're up to. I mean, okay, so it's dangerous work to work with explosives and you don't value these people. But you don't value anybody because people are fucking dying all the time and you're just respawning them with basic equipment. Why wouldn't you have, like, more trusted employees handling this seemingly very important task while you have all of the other people just generating revenue for you? A task that involves a fair bit of, like, moving in your small, tiny cells. (laughs) Yes, where they do not have an omnidirectional treadmill, apparently. It's like they've got those things on their arms and their ankles, but, again, you can only really walk about two feet ahead of you before you bonk into the glass. I question. I question the the feasibility of this entire enterprise, Jim. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's a castle built on sand, Conrad. Like libertarianism. (laughs) 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 Meanwhile, IOI has discovered the location of the last challenge in Anorak's castle on Planet Doom. It's an Atari 2600, that has every game ever made for it. But they don't know what the challenge itself actually is. It's one of these games. So they're trying them out all one after another, and the ice seems to fall out from under the player after a few minutes if it's not the right game. Uh, okay, so... The only time I remember specifically the need to be skilled at a specific video game appearing in the book is Joust which they reference as one of the ones it could possibly be. This happens in the very first quest of the, of the egg hunt. Uh, the, he goes to... He finds an, a Dungeons & Dragons module dungeon. That's, it's a very, very famous one. I can't remember the name of it now. But it's a very famous um, Dungeons & Dragons dungeon. Hang on, hang on, hang on, because I've, I've probably done it. Oh, Tomb of Horrors. I believe, yes. I believe it is the Tomb of Horrors. That's the famous, yeah. tough, horrible right. one that I've had to go through twice in my D&D playing, and I never wanted to do it again. Well, he, he, of course, has the Tomb of Horrors memorized and, you know, gets through it on his first try. And then at... Bullshit. Right. And then at the center of it is a joust machine that he has to play and, and, and win. And I think he fails to beat it the first time and has to come back and do it again. Um... But yeah, so in in this instance, the the game is is not Joust. Uh, it's and 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 they have them on this sort of glacier thing, and the ice falls out from underneath people when it's not the right game if they've played for a few minutes. So they've they've tweaked it a bit. Um, Sorrento goes to Irock and asks for that shield generating orb from earlier uh, that requires some magic words to be activated. And Sorrento leaves Irock to deal with that crap. So it sets up this big, impenetrable magic shield over all of the castle, preventing anybody but IOI employees from being able to get in. Um, coming back to his office, he discovers that Wade and Daito are waiting for him with guns. Ha ha! What a big surprise for Sorrento. And Wade demands to know where Artemis is, specifically her rig location, and a means of contacting specifically her, which is information he would obviously have easy access to from memory as the CEO of this massive company. Obviously. he. he oh, okay, sure. He... <laughs> <laughs> Wade leaves Daito in the office uh, uh, holding 
Sorrento at gunpoint, revealing to us with HN Show that they're actually in the Oasis and have created a facsimile of Sorrento's office to trick him based on Wade's having been there to see it. Uh... They locate and contact Artemis, who tells them the location of the challenge and the shield that's now sur- and, and about the shield that's now surrounding it. And they give her instructions on how to free herself from the pod she's in while giving her an authorized break using Sorrento's password. So now freed, she asks for Sorrento's password, directions to his office, and for Wade to raise an army. In the office, Sorrento realizes that he's still in the Oasis by seeing a reflection that wasn't properly programmed or something. He, you know, it's, it's a little reflection on the, on the arm of his chair that he looks at it and he sees behind him is just the raw artifice of H's workshop with H and, and Wade and show standing around. Uh, and so he takes off his visor in the real world and finds his office is empty. And uh, he goes looking for Artemis, realizing that they're looking for her because, you know, that's what they told him he was they were doing. And she's already outside his office. So, you know, they just pass each other like ships in the night. And she goes in there and gets in his rig. And Sorrento goes and argues with Finale over her failure to have dealt with these meddling kids. And she says she's on the case trying to track down their mail van, which they have already managed to identify because of that drone earlier. So Artemis in Sorrento's rig learns how to disable the magic shield orb by viewing his purchase receipt. And Wade broadcasts a a message to the whole of the Oasis. I'm not sure why he has the authority to do that, but he does. And it's a call to arms to fight against IOI's attempt to overtake the Oasis. And even the IOI employees are impressed as, you know, Sorrento, like, turns it off of every monitor while people are watching it, even there in the corporation. So Sorrento gets suited up and, and Artemis escapes his office while he's, you know, not looking around the office. H goes to activate the Iron, the Iron Giant in their workshop and goes to join Wade for the end of the speech. And there's this bit of awkward standing around that scene where, you know, they're wondering, oh, is anyone actually going to come show up? And then thousands of avatars appear on the horizon, thus validating Wade's heroic stand. Uh, the Battletoads are there for fuck's sake. And uh, Irock tries to comfort a despondent Sorrento with the classic line from It's a Wonderful Life, No Man is a Failure Who Has Friends. Uh, which is, of course, I mean, that is the, that's, that's the theme of this movie. This movie is also just... It's it's Friendship. a it's a wonderful life. Uh, with Pikachu at my side, I can do anything with my friends. Uh, Artemis sneaks into a Sixer rig, as the IOI team keeps trying games on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and one particularly ardent researcher insists that the correct game is Adventure. Uh, and b- before she even gets the opportunity to properly explain why that is, her boss. Like loses patience. Is she, is she a character in the book with more with more depth? Depth, because they she seems she seems to be like one of those characters that you might see in Harry Potter or Game of Thrones who has a big role in the book, but they've got no role for her in the film. So she's just there for people who know the book because she seems to be given prominence, right. but nothing else. Like, like she kisses the the boss at the end. 
um, when they're all cheering for the victory and stuff, like as if, as if like they're like referencing something from the book. She seems to have more prominence than just some schlub, but her role in the film is just some schlubs. I don't specifically remember her from the book as being significant, or really anybody on the research team individually. Um, these sorts of conversations do happen, uh, but I feel like this was added here specifically for the purposes of the film in order to humanize some of the people working in the organization who are really just as, they're really all about the hunt. And and this great yeah. mystery and less about the implications so. of their, you know, involvement in this horrible corporate enterprise. Yeah. We just came across as strange. Like, it just stood out to me that... Oh, no, it totally feels out of this place. This woman had prominence, yeah. but no... Like, prominence, but no prominence, if that makes nope, sense. I, I agree. Uh, so, um, they start trying an adventure, and it turns out to be the right gang because they don't get quickly dumped. Meanwhile, Artemis uses a drone to speak the magic words that will disable the orb remotely. And with the shield gone, Twisted Sister happens. With boring <laughs> IOI uniforms fighting every intellectual property owned by these 25 companies. <laughs> uh, Artemis gets into the fighting having... The army of the 25, we call right. them. Uh, Artemis gets into the fighting, having learned that adventure is the game, and, and so she wants to deliver this info to Wade. Uh, why she couldn't have just done that with a radio, I don't know. Maybe just because she's jacked into the Sixer system, and I don't know. You'd think they'd be monitoring the fuck out of every one of their employees in some way for, like, I don't know. If, if the NSA can monitor us to pretty great degree now, how much better is it going to be in 30 years? But what the fuck do I know? Uh, Wade instantly knows this is the right game because it's the first ever game ever uh, known to have had an Easter egg in it. Uh, everybody's. Fu what was the mod team doing during all of this? <laughs> what were the moderators? Doing? Well, that's just it. They never got a mod team. That that's what. The it wouldn't have survived without one. <laughs> Where are the community guidelines? They didn't. I know he didn't want rules, but there's always a community. So everybody's doing the fighting, except for Daito, who's just meditating in the van. Artemis... If there aren't mods, then there would be pop-up ads, because some corporations would go in without the rules to stop oh, them. There, there are not... Yeah, there's some sort of restrictions that do exist to prevent that kind of advertising rollout. Where's the mod team in all of this? I mean, it, it, is, it is mentioned. <laughs> I don't know how... It, it's never explained how magically this code could prevent that kind of manipulation. Uh, but there you go. I mean, couldn't you just, like, mod ads? Could you... There's so much you could do, actually, when you think right? about it. Um, so, let's see, where was I? Oh, right, uh, everybody's fighting. Um, Artemis and Wade are doing lots of the fighting. They're being tossed weapons from other warriors as they ride in the DeLorean. One of them is Chucky. I did laugh. One of them's Chucky. I did laugh at the Chucky and the guy yelling, it's fucking Chucky. Yeah. Uh, and then all the laughing and the stabbing. That did make me laugh. Yeah, I, I, I when it happened, I, I laughed in spite of myself, I think. Because I looked at it, oh... Okay, that's kind of... And then he's just doing the... Oh, I can't stay mad at you, Chucky. <laughs> As Finale cruises the streets looking for H's van, she sees everybody on the streets is doing the fighting and appears unsettled by this. Now, 
obviously the film is trying to convey that she should be concerned over the implications of what this means for the rest of the world versus the company she works for. But I like to think she's looking at it and thinking, oh my God, somebody's really going to hurt themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's all I was thinking. Yeah. Seeing people who can't see where they're going running in unison down the street. Sorrento even decides to get into the fighting. He summons Mecha Godzilla for himself to pilot and then kicks the ever-loving shit out of the Iron Giant, which, come on, that's how that was going to go down. There's no way in a fight oh, the yeah. Iron Giant doesn't get torn to shreds by Mecha Godzilla. I mean, that's why Mecha Godzilla versus the Iron Giant didn't fucking do oh, well in the box. It was box a office. huge bomb. It was a very short film. <laughs> It's at this point Daito decides to join the fight using the gauntlet artifact they want at the beginning of the movie, which allows them to summon a giant or to transform into a giant robot for two minutes. Uh, Daito transforms into a Gundam, saving Wade and Artemis from being crushed under Sorrento's feet. Artemis sends Wade on with Sho to win the key and returns to fight with Daito. Daito's two minutes of Gundam run out. Um, and Sorrento easily dispatches him, but H shows up with the uh, Iron Giant and holding up Artemis to get her in range. She shoots through the eye of Mechagodzilla, creating a hole, and then tosses a mad ball into the head of Mechagodzilla to blow it up. Yeah. And you know what creeped me out here? Is I was watching some I was watching a TV show before I put on Ready Player One, right? And while I was watching that TV show, I was playing with a mad bull. Holy shit. And it was it was the exact same mad bull. It was the mummy one. Oh, my one. God. I mean, this is a pretty deep cut. It freaked cut. me out. This is a pretty deep cut for a pop culture reference of such significance in this film. Oh, yeah. There are many other, like, 80s toys they could have done that would have been more recognizable than mad yep. bulls. Uh, but, yeah, like, I, I saw it and I was like, oh, that's freaky. <laughs> I was just playing with that. That feels like something that's, like, deliberately put in for, like, pretty hardcore 80s dorks. Yeah. Uh, people who... The kind of idiots who watch TV shows while chucking a mad ball yeah. around Pe- moments before putting on Ready Player people One. People who were actually alive in there. I mean, even still, that's still a small subset that's going to remember the fucking mad ball. Uh Shit's... That's the kind of thing that if I was watching this in the theatre, I'd be the only one who'd yell out, Oh! Yeah, yeah, I know that! I'd go, Oh! And then everyone would look at me and go, What the fuck are you doing, you fat piece of shit? And then I'd go, Mad Bull! Mad Bull! (laughs) And they'd throw me out. Shit's in chaos at IOI as Sorrento goes looking for Artemis, who he now knows is in a Sixer rig. The bridge to Anorak's castle is destroyed. The bobs laid earlier by Artemis and other loyalty center customers have been exploded. So the Iron Giant is used to form a bridge. Uh, as Wade and Sho attempt to cross, Irock tries to stop them and manages to eventually drop the giant into the lava mo- moat, but not before uh, they've made it over and he retreats after getting his arm shot off. Artemis realizes that she's about to be exposed in the war room at IOI, So, and Wade picks up on this because she's looking at nothing. She's looking to her side and seeing Sorrento unmasking all of the other people. This meat space stuff sucks. Anyway, he tells her he loves her, shoots her so she'll be eliminated and not exposed. I'm not sure why he would assume that that would just work. 
but it does. I guess he was just trying to force her to take her helmet I guess. off. I guess. Yeah. And she's passed. That's what I figured. She's passed over when made to exit her rig, uh, and she leaves IOI and takes the streets of Columbus. Wade uses his holy hand grenade to clear the path to the challenge of all the IOI people that want to fight him there. And they reach the room just as the player successfully finishes adventure and loses the challenge. Wade and the smart reacher IOI have realized that the solution is to actually find the Easter egg in adventure. Uh, Irock and Sorrento then appear behind him, capturing show. Uh, Sorrento threatens them with the big bomb that kills everyone. Uh, which Irock is totes not down with because of how much he has invested in his character. Now, I just want to be like, uh, why does Wade give a fuck about show in this moment? Like, why is holding him hostage of value to the bad guys? He just shot Artemis to remove her from the game. He knows that... Well, Artemis was technically, um... Using an IOI account, I guess, so there was no risk to shooting her. I right, guess. but I mean, it's. I guess what it comes down to is, well, okay, where Show will lose all his money and stuff if he gets shot. Right. But the 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 the, the consequences of that could be the opportunity to eliminate Sorrento and Irock. And so why? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean Show should have given up all the like. This just. Virtual yeah, there's just no leverage the here, good. I think, for Wade. Uh, but, yeah, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> Sorrento then threatens them with that big bomb that kills everyone that we were told about earlier because, you know, we needed to establish that it existed. And Irox totes not down with this because of how much he has invested in his character. And this distracts Sorrento long enough for Wade to kick the bomb out of his hands and fighting happens. So, Sorrento takes one in the game nodes but then winds up landing next to the bomb. Did you like that game notes? Come on, that's not bad. Uh, that's pretty not bad. Not uh, bad so. Activates the bomb, killing basically everybody in the Oasis who wasn't already dead because they were all converging on this planet to do this fight. But Wade isn't dead. He's still in the chamber because he has the quarter the curator gave him earlier, which has provided him an extra life. Uh, this is straight out of the book. That's another one of those elements. It's just carried over yeah. and totes fine. He begins playing adventure, and for reasons, this particular attempt is suddenly being broadcast to the whole of the Oasis. And here's another issue I have. All of the people who uh, sort of have been killed off in the battle, mm-hmm. which is implied to be a devastatingly huge amount of people, I don't think they'd then care because the economy has yeah, just Yeah, the collapsed. entire economy has just Because tanked. everyone just lost their money. Yep. Everything's gone. Actually, this is how Fight Club ends. Yeah. That bomb going off is how Fight Club ends. It's the, the, That's they're destroying right. the entire economic system. Yeah, like shit should have already within five Ex- minutes actually, no, it's, turned into Mad Max it, in me. Yes, space. that's true. But also, it's the inverse as I think about it, because all the debt still exists, but nobody has any money now. Trade. That's fucked up. Uh, ugh, as a world, that's a build a lot more loyalty no centers. Oh shit! Uh, so he begins playing adventure. In the real world, the high five van finds Artemis, and then IOI finds the van, and uh, the chase is on. Sorrento decides to take care of shit himself and gets in a Hummer and takes a gun from a security officer. 
Wade completes the adventure challenge, explaining the history of this particular Easter egg as he goes along, which is, you know, that the developer's name is being used as a credit. Uh, he doesn't really go into the politics of it and how people weren't allowed to have credits and how it was a direct defiance of his corporate masters yeah. to do that. But, you know, whatever. It's a short film. Once done, Anorak appears and offers the key to Wade, but the real world keeps interfering as the IOI Hummers keep fucking with H's ability to keep the van steady. And after a sequence dragged out for maximum drama, Wade turns the three keys and opens a treasure room where the egg resides. Anorak appears and offers him a pen with which to sign the contract that gives him ownership of the Oasis. And as this is happening, Finale has jumped into the back of the van to get into a fight with children. But Wade... <laughs> And Wade, still hooked into the Oasis, is the one who kicks her out the back door. Doing a whole spin thing on this hanging rig that they have for everybody. This this was sufficiently cool enough to where, even though I was thinking this is stupid, a child doing this to a full-grown adult, it did look cool enough to I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll, let it pass. It, okay. Let it pass, yep. Back in the Oasis, he realizes that this signature thing is another test. Oh, oh, oh! Uh, he also sends a message to the people at the Columbus Stacks to say, hey, we're coming and we need your help. Cool. Now you know. Back at the Oasis, he realizes the signature chest is another ta- test thing, a reflection of the moment that Ogden Morrow sold his shares in Gregarious Games to Halliday, and he refuses to sign. And this pleases Anorak, who transforms into Halliday, saying, I just had to be sure that, you know, you weren't an asshole, basically. Uh, yeah. Another... Real life looking Halliday, which again makes me think, why doesn't Oasis look right? like this? Uh, the room becomes the developer's childhood bedroom. Uh, Halliday shows him the button that shuts down the whole Oasis and deletes everything in it. And Wade almost presses it when the van is struck by Sorrento. Uh, it's a charming little thing, actually. I thought that was cute. The way uh, Halliday's just like, try not to destroy it all on your first day. And it's just so, he's so yeah. over all of it. Um, and I, I love that. They arrive at the stacks, and the people there immediately threaten Sorrento, who somehow are aware of what he's done to them. But Sorrento pulls his gun and uses it to clear the crowd between him and the van. Meanwhile, Halliday's rooting around for the Easter egg while explaining to Wade that he's learned this virtual world is no match for reality because reality is real. I mean, he's got it, me there. I can't argue it. I can't. I can't fire back yeah. against that. Reality is pretty real. Saying that he understands, Wade takes the egg as Sorrento opens the door to the van and realizes he's already lost. And then actual police show up and arrest him. What? Yeah. Uh, in the Oasis, Wade realizes that the Halliday from here is more than an avatar, but has it confirmed that Halliday is indeed dead, uh, and then never receives any further explanation is a mystery. The van door opens again, and Ogden Morrow's on the other side. Uh, Wade closes the... Yeah. You see, I thought I thought Halliday was going to turn out to be Ogden. Mm. Nope. Uh, Wade closes the door to kiss Ar- on him to, close, to kiss Artemis, and then it's opened by the police, who want to talk to him about a confession that they'd received um, that uh, where Sorrento confesses to having done, I don't know, something. Uh, which H admits to having sent. It was recorded in the workshop. The doors close and reopen again to reveal lawyers, which uh, Ogden Morrow explains are, are there from, from Gregarious Games for Wade's signature. Wade says he's splitting the company up with his clan, the other high-five scoring members of the quest. 
and people cheer and H talks to the cops and Sorrento and Finale are taken away in, 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 in handcuffs and in a car together. And Wade and Moro talk further. Moro reveals that he was the curator, but never had any inside knowledge of the quest and therefore saw nothing wrong with his interference in providing Wade the extra life. He uses the same justification in the books, in the book for providing them with all of this great equipment to do the final challenge. Uh, Wade explains that he believes Halliday's greatest regret was the dissolution of his partnership with Moro, uh, which then touches the old man. Uh, Wade tells us that the high five takes over the Oasis and immediately hires Moro as a consultant at a salary of 25 cents. They also... That's a stupid deal. I'd have taken a Yeah, just more. a little. I, well, I mean, Morrow's set for life. It's it's totally one of those, I'm a CEO who takes a $1 salary thing. They also uh, uh, ban loyalty centers from operating in the Oasis. Oh, and they shut it off on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which I'm sure has absolutely no effect on the global economy that is now completely intertwined with the platform. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone lost their fucking right. money, so it might not might matter. Not. But, uh, Anyone who was a conscientious objector or just couldn't be bothered or just wasn't logged in that day They are now anyway. the wealthiest motherfuckers uh, in the world. Gods! <laughs> Some random guy could buy out IOI, which I'm assuming is possible. I mean, I don't know how people who don't play games became as rich as Sorrento in the first There's place. There's probably a master account at IOI that's never logged into except to transfer resources. That's Maybe. how I do it. I just feel like I feel like elitist hardcore gamers would become the most powerful people in the world at this point. Or like making money on the death worlds. And I feel like that would be the worst world to live uh, in. Well, I mean, judging by this world, yeah. Mm, that could be... You know, just a, a bunch of Duke MELs running exactly. everything. Exactly. That could be... Uh, oh, I miss the Duke. Is the Duke coming back soon, Jim? Hell, Hell yeah. yeah. Oh. We'll be doing some more Very Duke. Exciting. There's more Duke coming. So I guess, uh, yeah, that's um, the movie. Oh, yeah, what happens? In, is that's that it, it for that's this film? That's how it ends. We went through it. I mean, it's still a ludicrous length of time for a podcast. I was worried we'd be getting to five, uh, well, three I mean, hours it's or a, five, it, uh, three, because it's a two-hour yeah, film. Yeah, uh, and a lot happens in it, but we, uh, yeah, we, we were pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, brisk pace. But then the movie itself is, for the most part, quite briskly yep. paced. Did you like it or not? I didn't hate it. I think is is where I'm at with it. Um, I don't. I, I I I'm not thrilled about the idea that it has these themes that it's so lightly touches on that I think are so important uh, yeah. that it just sort of moves off of very quickly and, and doesn't take the time to really consider the implications of what it's saying. Yeah, it's, it's a shallow but, film, ultimately. But, as I said before, it fits right in with that 80s Amblin stuff. It's a uh, perfectly digestible, well-executed film. That shining sequence alone justifies its existence for me. Um, I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly fine. I, I would n- not be opposed if my wife comes to me and says hey weren't we going to watch that movie before you had to do the podcast do you want to watch it now i will probably say yes um yeah it, it, it's all right it's that's it i'd, I'd watch it again with other people yep. like i know alex um suggested she might at least be interested just to go at the background details yep. um which is worth doing if you just want that i think that density of content, as you I said. I think the book taken literally would have been a really awful movie. Uh, 
from the sounds of what you've described to me. This has made some smart decisions uh, in removing a lot of plot elements that weren't necessary, changing plot elements that wouldn't necessarily work as well in the context of a film, and replacing them with things that are generally better. Um, on, on the whole, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pleased with the film. It's, it's certainly something I could watch again. It's not the nightmare I feared it could have been. And I think that's just down was, to the talent behind the camera. I was pleasantly surprised. I went in expecting worse because, as I said at the top of the show, the reputation of this movie precedes that, as does the book. Um, I think to think it's really bad is an overreaction. Yeah, I think it's an overreaction to really shit on it. It's not anything spectacular. No, like I say, it's a it's a decently paced, uh, very well paced rather, um, good looking. Uh, decently portrayed action adventure with that that Amblin influence. It, it's easy as, to as forget it's it two out. hours because of how quickly it moves. Yeah, it went quicker. Yeah. It went quicker because I wasn't really in the mood for watching it when I put it on. But by the time it ended, I was like, you know what? That was a good time and not a slog. So what are we doing next time, Jim? What are we doing next time? Well, this one is... This one has a good reputation. This is Rampage. Hotly anticipated. Uh, I figured we'd, yeah. While we're on the new the new stuff, uh, might as well ride it because there's quite a few things yeah. out. Uh, you know, Jumanji we've looked at, Ready Player One, uh, Tomb Raider, the new one we'll have to get to at some point. But Jumanji, another one with The Rock, very much like Jumanji, another game themed movie that is very well received critically. Yeah, looking forward uh, to it. People have been saying, yeah, Rampage is very good indeed. So we shall see. That'll be on the next episode of the Spin-Off Doctors, your movie boys here with uh, Jim and Conrad Zimmerman. You can follow him on Twitter, at Conrad Zimmerman. And I think that's yep, it. I think that's it. I think we'll see you next time. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Bye. Bye.